Sleepy town set on it for the night Where every lawn is tailored just right And it's about time that the back porch light comes on Hey, witch, hey. Hey, witch, hey. I'm Justina. And I'm Christina. Welcome to Magnolia Street, your one and only musically inspired practical magic fandom podcast. Every week we deep dive on different aspects of the movie and the books, as well as treat your ears to our very own practical magic inspired original music. Mm -hmm. This week we are tackling doves. That's today's episode. But first we wanted to do something at the beginning of what when we got our spotify wrapped we wanted to wrap up our year yeah we forgot to do this at the end of our what was it the song episode that was our last episode of the year we yes. wrapped up 2023 with another song episode for you guys um so go check that out if you have not yet but we wanted to take a little trip down i guess memory lane or you know just pay homage to the beast that has become magnolia street mm -hmm. i don't know if you want to call it that all right so we wanted to to just go over our stats and just kind of see what what you guys were feeling in 2023 because apparently some of you guys, maybe even a lot of you, were really enjoying this little thing that me and Christina put together here. <laughs> Let's get into it. So first of all, what was our top episode? What do you think our top episode was for 2023? Probably our very first one. And then everybody dropped off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gee, I wonder why. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little long-winded. I don't know. I don't know what it we're is. We're getting to know each other. Yeah, it says, uh, our Spotify rap says, that first episode was streamed 424% more than your average episode. That's a lot. That's too much. That's a, I, man, I really hope that's not the first one people dive into, but where do you start? You got to start at the beginning. Right, yeah, and follow our journey from beginning till now. You can tell how much more comfortable we are now. Even, we, we don't have our shit together, but... <laughs> Still don't yeah That's the first one yeah 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 we were just testing the waters feeling it out we were brand new at the podcast game we didn't know what the hell we were doing we don't know i mean we still don't but you know now we were kind of we fell into a groove and like we have a system down now and like you know i was thinking about that that's why because yeah. over the weekend i was like i miss you justina when we first started the podcast we were marcoing all the time like trying to get our ducks in order seeing how we work together do, like are the notes done is this done is this you know just constant contact but now i think you and i have a really good flow we don't talk as much yeah we don't need to be up each other's asses constantly because like you know now we kind of have everything aside from figuring out what episode we want to tackle from week to week and like putting notes together mm -hmm. everything else is pretty much like it's on its own kind of system yeah. and we have a yeah. well-oiled machine in place so well, it's, unless it's you nice have a retrograde kind of and i fuck up all the postings for that week <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, so this is saying that 89% of our listeners discovered us in 2023, which is also a lot. A lot of you guys discovered us this year, so hopefully 2024 will bring on a whole slew of new listeners, I hope. I hope so, too. Um, so this says 52% of our new listeners started on at our very first episode. Ugh. So, like, half. Yeah. Half of our, yeah. I guess, half of our okay. listeners started at episode one and i guess the other half maybe just jumped in at the most current episode and then are kind of jumping around to what maybe fits their interests mm -hmm. more so 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't really don't know what the uh, the trend is for, you know, listeners and what they're, you know, interested at that time. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah. apparently we're global. Apparently. This says, how does it feel to have gone global? You were streamed in 34 countries. United States was your top country with 73% of your total streams. So we have the most new listeners in number one, obviously the United States. Our second most listened to country is the United Kingdom. Then number three is Canada. Number four, Australia. And number five, Germany. You know, that's Sam. (laughs) Sam in Australia. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Sam in Australia. Um, So those are our most listened to, I guess. And Germany. How about that? It's because you're so good at Dutch, like in the (laughs) Germanic languages. Yeah. So it says your listeners have good taste, obviously. So what else are they into? Let's see what else our listeners are into. What what are the top podcast genres that our listeners also listen to? Starting at number three, true crime. So do we have a true crime flair to us? I don't know. We have murder. We have mystery. A little, a little bit of it, yeah. yeah. Number two, this, this one's kind of obvious because, you know, our content is based on a lot of religion and spirituality. So our number two position... Our listeners also listen to a lot of other religion and spirituality. So that one makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then I guess the first, this next one makes sense too. Number one, comedy. I would like to think we're funny. I I hope so too. And it's under our like anchor, not anchor, it's not anchor anymore, Spotify Mm -hmm. podcaster or whatever. We listed ourselves as spirituality, I think. Yeah. But somehow we landed on the the comedy spectrum, which is great. I think we're hilarious, but I don't know if we had that option to choose from in the Spotify for podcasters. I I think maybe we put a comedic spin on, you know, spirituality and religion, which is most of the time, it could be a very heavy topic. Yes. You know, Um, you can take it really seriously. Like you could probably take it too seriously, but I guess we put the fun in it and I hope that we do for people. And I hope people enjoy listening to our take on this very vast topic. Mm -hmm. I don't want to take ourselves too seriously. And I think we do a really good job of keeping things lighthearted on here. Sure. Some, you know, we've had a few heavy topics now and then, but Mm -hmm. again. And we we try um, to come at them with reverence as much as we can. Sometimes we need a little palate cleanser in the middle now and again. Right. Yeah. I I don't know where the true crime comes in though, but. If you guys like listen to all those things, then we appreciate that you're taking the time to listen to us too. Your listeners' top music genres were number one, pop. All right, that makes sense. Number two, rock. That makes sense. Number three, rap. Rap music. A lot of our listeners oh. listen to rap music. I would not have even put the two and two together, but that right. is very interesting. Okay. Is it because I try to rap horribly, mind you? What was that song, that Salt and Peppa song that I was singing that one oh, time? Oh, yeah. What was that? Here we, here we go, here we go, here we go. <laughs> here, we, here we, yeah, I don't remember. That's the only one I know. Yeah. Uh, all right, so your your listeners definitely told their friends about you. Thank you for telling your friends about mm-hmm. us. Um, It says your podcast was shared all over. So some of the ways our podcast was shared over this past year. 88% over direct link. And I'm pretty sure that's probably me posting <laughs> yeah. our Instagram stories. Like, listen to this, listen uh-huh. to this. Because every time a new episode drops, I post it to our stories and I post the hot link. So if people cl- click right through that, it's going to take them right to our Spotify page. So I was really I guess hoping they'll... it was people like sh- sharing our link with their friends. Like, hey, look what I just yeah. found. But it could very well be our Instagram stories. Yeah, I think I definitely think it's the Instagram stories. But that means people are click- clicking the links, though. That's true. Because so. But like the next one, 5%, people are sending okay. us through texts. 
text message yeah and then three percent facebook which is understandable i feel like facebook's kind of dropping off the map as far as like sharing content goes but here's what's interesting they have a instagram specific percentage here so i'm not sure yeah. if that's included in the direct link i don't know yeah i i don't know how these um calculations are added up two percent instagram and then two percent other which i really don't know what would be classified as other i don't know <laughs> know not sure um so your podcast rating was i guess just five we could like five stars like the average i guess whoever's hitting the star we have yeah rating. we're five out of five so That's i could feel the love five out of five remember when we had a negative one like way back in the day and they deleted it that's right yeah, yeah do you think they heard us on talking shit about them on the, <laughs> on the podcast <laughs> we are yeah we're five out of five stars i don't remember how many votes we have on spotify but i can look really quick um, so through Spotify, we are able to publish polls and release a poll with every single episode. So we have published one poll in the past year. I don't really utilize the polls. I mostly utilize the um, Q&A feature. Mm -hmm. um, but this says you published one poll, which received seven votes. And I, honestly, I couldn't even tell you what the poll was because I don't, I don't know either. Um, yeah. But 41 of you five starred us. So thank you. Wow. One. Thank you, 41 of you. Yeah. Like I was saying before, I mostly utilize the Q&A feature. We posted 46 Q&As because I try to do a Q&A for every episode because, mm -hmm. you know, it's nice to get the listeners involved, especially if you listen to us on Spotify, you'll see the questions that we include with every episode under that episode post mm -hmm. in your Spotify app. We received 32 responses. So that's... It's good that's ratio response rate and i noticed that's mostly the same people responding to so thank so, you <laughs> so thank you to to whoever is interacting with our episodes if you do listen listen to us on spotify we appreciate you and your participation so i have a little bit of a pop quiz for you christina all right all right this is multiple choice so what episode got the most audience engagement number one episode 21 lilac magic and lore which i don't know if you guys remember that is that was the very first fan fiction we lilac we <laughs> yeah it was right we included a billy zane fan fiction in that episode um number two episode 18 black soap with our special guest laura den hertog or episode one welcome to magnolia street meet the stinas what do they mean audience engagement like I answering q and a's like Maybe either the most listeners or Q&A responses. I'm really not sure what uh, that means. Engagement. I want to say Laura's. Did Laura's Laura. get the soap? Mm -hmm. Try again. Lilac. Yeah, it said Lilac. Lilac Magic and Lore episode 21 is correct. Listeners joined in seven times. Oh, how did they so do I guess, that? I don't get I it. I don't know. I don't know what that means. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means just listening in or... I don't think listening in because we have more listeners on that episode than seven people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so maybe they mean with the Q&A engagement? Okay. That could That's be what it. I'm thinking. Yeah. All right. So are you a gardener? How do they know that? They they, they must peek into our... I was going to say windows, but you don't garden inside, so that would be stupid. <laughs> um, it's expensive to put holes in your walls and make light. <laughs> <laughs> you mean windows? <laughs> Windows. One of the stupidest things I've ever said. <laughs> the best. Anyway, so because your podcast saw some nice growth this year, we saw 999% growth in our listeners. As far as streams go, also 999%. Our followers, 843%. And then we created 999% of content, of minutes. I wonder how many hours total all of our 
episodes are. Oh my together. god. Well, I mean, we we edit a lot too and we get things down to like our longest episode was like what the exorcism with like five five hour long episode right we must have gotten like eight hours of content we've probably talked a month long oh my god and we were at the studio recording at that time yeah like we probably could have used the vocal rest but no we decided and then we sang the holy home (laughs) right and annoyed the shit out of poor Avi. Poor Avi. So we can't forget to give a shout out to our biggest fans. You're a top 10 podcast for 406 fans. Damn. Damn, guys. 406 of you were in the top 10. Guys. That's so nuts. we were on a, a lot of people's Spotify wrapped for the year. Right. Yeah. We did get a couple. A couple people sent us screenshots. Did uh, we? Uh, that we they were like our number one listener. I'll have to look that up. I missed all that. Um, so we're actually a top five podcast for two hundred and ninety six fans, which is oh, also a lot cool. to be a top in top five. Thanks, guys. And then drum roll, please. <gasps> You're the number one podcast for a hundred and seventeen fans. Whoa! Thank you, one hundred and seventeen of you. Thanks, guys. <laughs> putting us up on that pedestal oh here we go is this summer summer was uh she sent us one and there says you've listened to eight thousand minutes eight thousand plus minutes and you're the top number one fan thank you of magnolia street podcast eight thousand minutes yeah uh summer who else i heart practical magic uh was also we were in their top five for their spotify rap thanks kim that's awesome thank you guys Yes. And top fans listen to you 4.9 times more than your other listeners. Mm. So we really appreciate you guys for making us want to continue doing this. I'll shout out Granny Witch as well. We were on their six podcasts to get to know me, uh, their Instagram story. And we were one of them. So thank you. I miss all this. What are they, did they posted this on Instagram? Uh, I reshared it. This was like November 27th okay. and like through through Thanksgiving. Oh, that's really sweet of you guys. Thank you so much for the support and for listening to us and for blasting us all over social media. Um, and this says 79% joined you for the first time this year. And like we said before, like we saw a big influx of listeners join in this year. So 2023 has been pretty poignant year for growth for Lots us, of I would say. Sure. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So top 10, 406 fans, top 5, 209 296 fans and top podcast for 117 fans so that's that's awesome thanks guys my heart is warm and fuzzy right now we just love talking about practical magic we just want to keep doing it it. yeah we have so much more to talk about um so this does come with a little wrap sheet so we could post that to our social media okay and so today we're coming at you with another hot topic um i don't know how many of you guys are interested in the dubs but we're going to talk about that today and i guess we'll put like a little disclaimer on this one also because it's kind of back to back with our gustav episode this one's going to have some biblical talk in it also a little later because doves are very big in christianity so we're going to touch on that um just stick it out you can fast forward we're going to put timestamps on stuff but just you know if it uh it's not your thing yeah keep on scooting but i just want to point out that you know me and you you know we don't align with the christianity whole mentality and that whole you know faith yeah yeah but i do think it's good whether you follow a religion's dogma or not like it's just good to expand your mind and learn different things about different religions whether you align with their belief system or not you know totally agree 
Yeah, absolutely. We are theologians. We just like learning about everybody's uh, points of view and why, why, the big why of why the you big, think that. The big why, right. And it's just expanding your mind, expanding your brain, wanting to just know everything there is to know. Yeah. But I think at a point in time, you and I both had a salty shoulder, maybe, about it. And maybe like mm -hmm. listening to something, having something pop out at you on a podcast and you didn't know it was coming. It's kind of like, ugh, I thought yeah. I liked these people. <laughs> I don't know. But right. we just want to let you know that um, it's part of the context of this story. And it's very interesting that these symbols for a very, as we can see, pagan household, mm -hmm. they're, they're a part of their family and a part of their life. And it seems like there could be a lot more similar to Justina and I than we think, you know? Yeah. And I know anybody who is a witch, in most cases, I feel like have come from the Christian or Catholic faith mm -hmm. and have felt ostracized because of, you know, the way that they are, or maybe they, they follow the earth a little more than people in that faith would like. So they label them a witch. So mm -hmm. I just feel like witches have been in the same, just that same energy in that Christianity space. They're sure. always kind of like in the, they're parallel together throughout history because they have always been opposing forces. Mm -hmm. So they're always lumped in together. So I think, of course, at some point, paganism and Christianity is gonna cross paths. Absolutely. You know? These ancient symbols have been around way longer than Christianity have, and we know how right. they like to just commandeer certain things. <laughs> um, so, but it, with that comes man written word that has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about today so just hang tight um, yeah. but let's talk about the doves in the movie right yeah. yeah so the dove page and i have some screenshots here we'll include these in our show notes so the dove page actually makes its appearance and this is the only time it makes its appearance in the movie right um this is at five minutes and 55 seconds so really early on in the film and this is when um there's the young jillian and sally they're living with the aunts at this point and they're kind of just watching what the aunts do as far as their magic is concerned and just, they're just finding their way in the world as little witches and they're learning from the big guns right their aunts are like they make a living doing this they're witches yeah. for hire basically and irene our favorite desperate debbie comes <laughs> to the door to the no back chill. door yeah no cheer no chill irene comes to the back door wanting this love spell for this man obviously we're under the impression they're implying that he is a married man right mm -hmm. she wants this guy she doesn't care what it's going to take to get him even if it like takes him leaving his wife for her mm -hmm. so right then and there we're like oh these aunts a red flag not sure about their code of ethics here so they whip out this bird spell right and as we learn in the books i think this was this the 10th invocation the 10th spell love spell um so this includes the dove and we can see the pages in the book when jet opens the book first of all look at that yeah. manicure though I know. She's got beautiful nails. Ooh, very beautiful nails. Very uh, beautiful. It looks like a French manicure. Right? Mm, lovely. Like French manicure. And that beautiful ring she's got on with like the mm. cameo in the center. Her hands are just like ageless. They're For so an older delicate. woman, she's got beautiful right. hands. Delicate. Well, there must be that black soap. Yes. Right? Yep. Yeah. Um, Laura Den Hertog has been uh, hitting them up. <laughs> yeah. Which one of them says, get the bird? And the other one says, get the book. Do you know jet you says get the bird jet says get the bird and, and yeah Franny says, says get the, get get the, the book. book so then jet gets the book and she 
lumps it on the table, that big boof, right? It's a huge book. Opens it to the page. The first page she flips to, I can't tell what that is. Is that those feathers? That looks, that looks to me like a, uh, like a Christmas cactus yeah, <laughs> or some kind that? of reef. Uh, sea. What am I trying to say? Like seaweed or like something. Seaweed. Yeah. And she just like kind of like grazes the page with her delicate hands, just, and then she not. turns turns the page, and then on this next page we see the we see a feather, but it looks like a raven feather. It's very. It doesn't dark. look like a dove feather. It's like a dark yes dark yeah. feather, right? Mm-hmm. The feathers kind of like pasted on top of like what looks like an herbal page. There's mm-hmm. like leaves on it. And it looks like maybe there's a wax seal on the bottom left corner mm-hmm. or something. It's got like I a little know. postcard of different birds also. Right. Um, and then when they zoom out, they pan out on Jet, I guess, taking the money from Irene. She's taking hair out of a comb. Hair out of a comb. Taglock! <gasps> That's right. Yeah, because as we've learned in our sympathetic magic episode, I forget what number episode that was. 30. Episode 30, season one. If you guys want to go back and listen to that, we talk a lot about all that stuff so she's getting a tag lock from this comb which is either this lady's hair or this guy's hair probably the guy's hair right yeah yeah yeah. yeah. we see the open page of this book now do they ever close up on that bird page not that i know of i'm not sure if when sally's flipping through it it shows up but the viewpoint that we're getting is that of the girls and they're like hiding at the top of the stairs because you can see the banister kind of in a blurred vision so it's like they're peeking in on this this situation they're not supposed to be looking at right jet pulls a little bit of the hair off the comb she lays it down on the page and then i think it cuts to franny gently taking one of the doves mm-hmm. i don't know how many doves they have in that cage but out of yeah. the cage in the greenhouse right yeah. so we're thinking that they breed these doves specifically for this love spell or they're getting them sourced somewhere you guys need to go listen to our last episode was it the <laughs> Was it was it Gustav, yeah. yeah, we talked a little bit about where they're possibly sourcing their spell ingredients mm-hmm. from, including some of the animals that they work with. Right. And in Rosemary, too, we noticed that they had this thing of eggs in the greenhouse behind where uh, Sally and Gary are talking. But even in this shot, you can see a big bowl of eggs on okay. the table. <gasps> you think they're dove eggs? I don't know how big dove eggs are. They can't be that big. No, do you think they're eating? Do you okay? So they use these. Obviously, they use these doves for love spells. But do you think they're eating them too? Because I don't know. Later on, I have included some dove recipes. Oh shit! Pigeon. Okay, pigeon, people p- people eat pigeon like it's a delicacy. Okay. Yeah, I would. Pigeons would not be the first animal that I'm jumping to 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 bring a chow <laughs> okay. down on. But I mean, you guys, if you like pigeon, have at it. We we're including some recipes for you <laughs> okay. if you want some some awesome. good pigeon recipes. Yeah. Pigeons and doves are, are kind of synonymous, and we'll talk about the, the similarities and the differences in a minute when we get into all the science, but yeah, I was just wondering if the if the aunts were, you know, putting the dove on their, their Christmas dinner list of stuff to cook up. I don't know, I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> anyway, back to this whole spell. We can't really see what's on the page because it's kind of from a distance in this shot, but then Jet takes kind of like a little... She's got a pin, and the head of the pin is like a crystal ball, like a tiny little crystal ball with a dove claw around it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which is really yes. cool. And I I always thought that was a necklace because I've seen necklaces that have that pendant on it. And for the longest time, I never put two and two together that it was actually the head of the pin that they used to stick the dove with. Yeah, it's like their bookmarker. Like that's how they get to the spell right away. So wild, yeah. So they, they stick the uh, the dove with the pin. Poor, poor baby dove. Yeah. It's not a baby dove. I'm just saying it's a poor baby. Like my poor, poor baby. baby. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, ugh, I don't like seeing animals get hurt like that. But 
And then I guess they send Irene on her merry way. But before they do, Jet says, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, well, all we see of that spell is Franny take the dove out. She instructs Jet to take the money. The lady throws the money down. She's looking at a picture of the guy. She kisses it. Um, they give her that long pin. And we don't see the actual piercing, which which is nice. But we yeah. see the girls uh, react. The young girls react and turn their little heads. And We hear uh, it, though, right? We hear the little... Yeah. No, like little puncture <laughs> sound. Yeah. And ah. Irene's wish is, I want him to want me so much that he can't stand it. And then bam! And that's all we see. On the page that we were provided by Isis Chandler and her recreation, it's a little bit different because like Justina said, that actual picture of this dove page is so hard to see. And we don't know what else this entails. And you and I, you and I were trying to think of this and I'm not sure what episode, like, do they have to? eat it did they just need the blood because when jet gets the pin back she's just looking at the end of the pin um we're not right. sure we we're never gonna know yeah like because in the book after they do the spell for irene and even at the end i guess when sally and gary get together for thanksgiving don't they find the heart of the dove with pins in it in like the refrigerator or something yeah just on a platter just on a plate Huh. Yeah. So hmm. yeah, are they planning on cooking that up for Thanksgiving dinner? Like, are they gonna bury it? Like, who the fuck know. knows what they're gonna do with with the dove? And it was the dove heart, not the actual dove, right? Mm -hmm. So at some mm -hmm. point, they take the heart out of the dove. In the movie, we see this page being used as something to like ensnare somebody, maybe against their will. Right. And the bird on the page, there's a drawn cage around it. On Isis's page, the door is open to the cage, at least. And I think this is about being freeing yourself from yeah. some kind of tether. So right. she changed it to make it a little more moral, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we, again, going back to the aunt's code of ethics, we think there's none. <laughs> we don't think there's any real code of ethics going on there. So obviously this love spell, having a bird in a cage, symbolizing somebody's free will in a cage, mm -hmm. right, to entrap or to ensnare. And Isis kind of put her own spin on it to make it, you know, more, a little more morally ethical. It's a different so, form of like cord cutting, you know, right. to free yeah, yourself yeah. from somebody, something, somebody, something toxic. Yeah. I don't know. So I guess if we can talk about the similarities on the page of both pages, the page sure. in the film and Isis's recreation, mm -hmm. the page is laid out the exact same. We have the ornate little, um, they look like athames or swords or like vines and stuff in the corners. And the cage is the main center focus. We have the bird, the main center focus. They both say lore, L-U-R-E, lore, like to lure an animal. Mm -hmm. And they both have the moon phases over the top, the big full moon in this, or is that the new moon in the center? It is a dark moon, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, a dark, it's a dark moon. Mm -hmm. um, and then there is some poetry or some like a little spell or a phrase or incantation in both of them. But in the movie, it's a screenshot, right? And so we can't see what that says. It's very illegible. Um, and even on the bottom, toward the bottom of the cage, there's also some writing there in both Isis's and the film. But in the film, can't see it. Isis, I guess she couldn't see it either. So she wrote her own spell, it, it looks like. The only other similarity that I can see is it looks like from corner diagonally, there's almost like a huge X across the page. Oh, yeah. But these kind of also look like big pins. Um, right. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Doesn't that look like a big pin? Yeah, maybe that's what those things are in the cor the top corners of the page. Know. Maybe they're pins. I don't know. But those um, little filigree I things in the corner remind me of the Sagittarius archer, like an archer symbol. 
yes. it doesn't have anything to do with anything, but that's what it looks like to me. Definitely. Well, Sagittarius, they they're the hunter, so mm -hmm. they hunt hunting with, their prey with the like whatever they hunt their prey with impales their prey. Hey, there we go. We're so smart. There's the connection. Okay. Okay. Um, but I do see the X. It's a very faint line going, you know, crossing that page. And we, I can also see it in the film version as well. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everything is basically the same design except for Isis's. The bird, the door to the cage is open. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, she's got some amazing, amazing pages. How she recreated her pages and put her own spin on it. Mm -hmm. I just think that's so brilliant. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to retouch on the dove ingredient in the vengeance spell in mm -hmm. the grimoire and this flashes by so fast i didn't even realize that it showed up here until we just did our deep dive on the gustav dore episode that we just did last week you guys should definitely go listen to it because we do talk a little bit about the dove in one of those pages yeah. um that was our last episode number 63 um so go listen to that we had many revelation on that episode in reference to those grimoire pages and yes. the dove just so happened to make another appearance that i never noticed before on the vengeance spell which is one of the pages sally flips to when she goes to the aunts to get them to bring michael back to, when she wants them to bring michael back to life did we ever talk about i know we talked about that page the vengeance page it has a dove in the ingredients but yes. that's the same page where the arc is covered up by that piece of paper with the ingredients on it and the dove we're going to talk about more later came to noah on the ark as a symbol of like you're all gonna live uh -huh. basically okay it's connected it's all fucking connected yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly so yeah <laughs> go listen to our gustav episode it came out last week brilliant just revelations all around never been done just, before outstanding my, one of a kind my mind is blown i'm just like how are we making all these connections it's just blowing my mind every yeah. time yeah yeah all right um so we're gonna get into the book now right yeah the let's dive in all... are we we're going chronologically today yeah so we'll start with maria's story and that's back in the 1600s so this is magic lessons we're gonna start on pages 11 and 12. this says for magic lessons from that warm and cozy spot she had watched hannah scan the pages of her book filled with remedies and spells careful to take note of the potions and powders that were prescribed amulets of apple seeds and menstrual blood doses of henbane that could bind a couple together or if used in excess could cause delirium or death the heart of a deer or a dove that brought about devotion even in the most feckless and untrustworthy men a fragrant verbena which depending on its use or what the user desired could bring a man to you or cause him to be impotent page 15 she had the ability to speak backwards, an unusual trait, and it sometimes seemed she could converse in the language of birds, calling the crow to her with a sharp clacking sound and chattering with magpies and doves. I think that's Maria, right? Mm -hmm. Page 20. Maria wrote carefully with curving near-perfect script, using ink made from the bark of hawthorn and oak trees and the ashy bones of doves she had found strewn in the grass. Maria made a bond with doves as she had all birds, and much later in life she would be grateful she had done so. Page 20. To win the favor of Venus in all matters of love, gather a white garment, a dove, a circle, a star, the seventh day, the seventh month, the seventh star. I guess maybe we have a little more about Venus later? <laughs> I don't know oh, okay remember we talked about also in our wmsr episode venus the morning star lucifer etc right. go listen to that yeah <laughs> page 27 she had bound him to her i think this is talking about rebecca bewitching mm -hmm. him with the tenth love potion a spell far too dangerous for common use wrap a red candle on which his name and yours is written on red paper soak in dove's blood and burn through the night saying the words 
Love conquers all, so it must be. Let him burn with love for me. My lover's heart will feel this pin, and his devotion I will win. There'll be no wait for him to rest nor sleep until he comes to me to speak. Only when he loves me best will he find peace, and with peace, rest. The incantation must be recited while stabbing the dove's heart with seven pins on the seventh day of the week. For the use of the tenth, an enchantment too strong for the usual manner of dissolving spells, Rebecca had paid a steep price. Page 44 to 45. For love gone wrong, Vervain eases the pain of unrequited love. A cobweb on a door means your beloved has been untrue. To bring about passion, aniseed, burdock root, myrtle leaves, amulets for luck are made of blue beads, dove feathers, mistletoe, and wishbones. All spells increase with the waxing moon, decrease with the waning moon. Place two eggs under the bed to cleanse the atmosphere. Destroy afterwards. Do not eat or use... Who's that your cat? Yeah. <laughs> Knock <laughs> shit over. God. Do not eat or you will swallow bad fortune. A mirror beside you reflects back the evil eye. For protection against love, black cloth, red thread, clove, and blackthorn. Page 262-263. As Maria watched Samuel go, she was thinking about Abraham, Samuel's father. Buried a mile away, an expert on love, who had told her in the moments before his death that he saw love inside her. It looked like a dove, he said but appearances could fool you. Some people mistakenly believe it was peaceful and calm, but that wasn't what love was. It was a wolf. Just like on the vengeance page, they needed a wolf. Oh shit. Think? Yeah, wolves and doves, man. Yeah, but like why continuously, this is, the doves are continuously connected with death. Mm. Weird. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Um, quite possibly, that could be true. Reading this passage about Abraham and his mentions of the dove, I was wondering if there was something more religiously symbolic going on here because we know Abraham is a prominent figure in the Bible hmm. and the dove is already a religious symbol. So, but also we know that Alice likes to pull from other literature and use references in an interesting Easter egg kind way. So I Googled Abraham and doves in the Bible and this is what I found. So this is from forthillumc.com. It says, I asked the question, this was, this came, popped up in Google. What does the dove represent in the Bible? New creation, new possibilities, the presence of God. In Genesis 15, a dove is part of the clean animals who are sacrificed to God as a sign of Abraham's covenant with God. Abram, who will later become known as Abraham, offers this sacrifice as a sign of his faithfulness to God, of God's new beginnings, and his life as he walks with his family to a land where they never lived before. Wasn't so, Abraham supposed to, Abraham and Isaac, wasn't he supposed to sacrifice his son, Isaac? Was You're asking the wrong per okay. like person. <laughs> I, again, I was a horrible Catholic okay. school student, but you know, just doing the research now, this is what came up this is what i found and i just thought it was interesting how alice named that character abraham and he sees love inside maria as a dove and Aww. i just thought the symbolism was just i was it's like lovely this gotta mean something yeah. um so i just thought it was interesting how alice just threw those little little biblical references in there just a little tad of it mm -hmm. So Abraham describing how he sees his love inside of Maria as a dove, which is the symbol of new creations, new possibilities, and the presence of God, while he was liter literally on his deathbed, it was as if this was symbolically helping him transition him to the spirit realm, like another psychopomp, like we talked about with the rabbits, maybe, the afterlife to heaven, whatever you want to call it. The dove that he symbolically saw inside of Maria as he, as, 
she was at his bedside while he was on his deathbed was perhaps a guide to help him transition between those worlds if that makes any sense also if we think about the death card of the tarot that card is also about cycles endings and new beginnings very true yeah it could very well be connected to death as well all right Page 308. Some unscrupulous vendors sold merchandise that was nothing more than wilted weeds, or a smudge of ash said to be made of doves' hearts, but nothing more than pipe leavings swept into tins, or perhaps rosemary oil flecked red with paint pigment or matter root. All of it was dubbed with false Latin names. And lastly, on 399. In tall glass jars in the pantry, there was mandrake, belladonna, mushrooms of all sorts, blue beads, black feathers, apple seeds, the hollow bones of birds, doves' hearts. There you go. That's it. That is like a staple in their pantry, apparently. Right, yeah. I mean, so much so that in the film, anyway, they have a cage of doves just chilling in the greenhouse, just Mm -hmm. waiting on call for these spells. Anyway, all right, so we're we're gonna talk about rules of magic now. So this is the second book in the series, and this is about more about the aunts when they were coming of age and, um, I guess, living with Aunt Isabel and that whole story. So page 26. Franny had stumbled upon some of the more disquieting ingredients in the pantry. The bloody heart of a dove, small frogs, a glass vial containing teeth, strands of hair to boil or burn, depending on whether you wanted to call someone to you or send them away. So there you go, the tag lock, the hair, and we saw that in the film. Franny takes the hair from the comb, right? From Irene. Um, pages 34 to 35. One of Maria's remedies called for the beating heart of a dove to be taken from the bird while it was alive. Another included collecting the hair and fingernail clippings of a disloyal man and burning them with cedar and sage. So more sympathetic magic here. Um, page 176. Jet told them yes, an onion and a pure heart were the best ingredients. She had a pure love too once upon a time. These girls were too young and, and innocent for dove's hearts or spells written in blood. They hadn't the faintest idea of what love could do. Jet, on the other hand, knew only too well, and should she ever forget, should she wake up in the middle of the night and not know where or who she was, there was always a scar on her face to remind her. Mm. Do you remember where her, did it say where her scar came from? The accident. The accident. Okay. On page 224, William and Regina approached the patio, holding hands and singing their own versions of I Walk at Night. William carried the bunch of cut flowers with their purple-red blooms. I had a garden. I had a dove. I had a tree. I had your love. Mm. We're going to write that song one day. Yeah. Or put the melody to it, at least, because it seems like, did Alice already write lyrics to that? Were they in the book? Here and there. I don't think the whole thing. Okay. Um, We'll have to ask her if we could we're allowed to do that. <laughs> we use her words and put them to, yeah. to music on page 322 she began to work from isabel's grimoire starting with the easy recipes chamomile for blessing hyssop and holly to dispel negative energy and after a few weeks she progressed to one of the most complex skills the dove's heart love charm she went to the butchers for the heart and after okay so they go to the butcher for their heart they don't just rip it out of the dove i guess they yeah. just use the, the body of the dove to stick with the pins and for the heart they actually go to a butcher mm. to Unless they bring the the dove's body that they stick with the pins and they bring that already dead dove to the butcher and they're like, okay, can you do the dirty work for us? Oh, dang. And then just give us the heart. Do you think that's what they do? Yes. Yeah. Wow. And afterward, there was all sorts of chatter on Main Street. People peered out their windows as she walked home with a bloody paper bag. She was to prick the heart she had carefully prepared for a client who was to say... My lover's heart will feel this pin and his devotion I will win. There will be no way for him to rest nor sleep until he comes to me to speak 
Only when he loves me best will he find peace and with peace rest. And again, this is the same spell that we read in from Magic Lessons, the one that I guess uh, Rebecca uses on not the not the dude she was married to. She used that on her baby daddy, right? No, she used it. Oh, she used it on the guy she is married to, but now she's like, shit, shit, I need to reverse this. So she goes oh. to Hannah. But I'm curious to know if they changed it a little bit because it sounds oh. like Jet is doing this for more people when you're not really supposed to be doing this 10th. Okay. And looking back on what we just read in the magic, um, the what Rebecca said, there's a little mm -hmm. bit more before and it says love conquers all, so it must be let him burn with love for me though that is left out of all the other um, hmm. cantations that alice has written for this spell so i'm wondering if that has anything to do with the, the power of love <laughs> i don't know yeah i don't know and i don't know if that was that was included in in the grimoire i guess that maria passed down but maybe maria changes changed it a little bit maybe. when she included you know all the stuff i guess from hannah or from rebecca or whoever mm -hmm she included spells from in that book. I don't know how much things could have changed from generation to generation. Like, you know, like we're talking, it's like a game of telephone when you're passing these little nuggets of information down from generation to generation. Things could get, I guess, lost in translation somewhere along the line. You make it your own recipe. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then the very last mention in this book is on page 323. And that says, when she spied the dove's heart on a blue willowware plate, she laughed out loud. Here it was, their future and their fate. She had often found such unsavory items in the pantry or in the fridge where their aunt had stored away the more questionable ingredients. It might also be a way for them to survive their dismal financial state. And was this talking about Franny or Jet? I'm not sure. But yeah. uh, is this, see, again, I'm confused. Is this the 10th or is this love potion number nine that costs $9.99 and that's how oh. they're making their money so to oh. survive their dismal financial state? Mm -hmm. I well, I think that they're open for business regardless of if it was the 9th or the 10th. Oh. I think they're taking whoever comes to that back door and is like, I need a love spell. They're okay. like, just name your spell and we'll name your price. Like... Mm -hmm. I'm thinking that they're not turning anybody away because they closed their store in the city, right? To go live back in, I guess, Massachusetts. Magnolia yeah, on Magnolia Street. And that was their only source of income at that mm -hmm. time. So okay. I'm I'm pretty sure they ain't turning anybody away. Yeah. Hence okay. the lack of code, code of ethics because they're like, well, we just need to pay our bills. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do whatever uh -huh. you want. Uh-huh. Right. All right, let's jump into practical magic. Okay. So page 16, it says, this is Irene talking. She's already come to the back door. She says, mm -hmm. I'm sure, the girl said, in her be calm, beautiful voice. And the aunts must have been satisfied because they gave her the heart of a dove set on one of their best saucers, the kind with the blue willows and the river of tears. Sally and Jillian sat on the back stairs in the dark, their knees touching, their feet dirty and bare. They were shivering, but still they grinned at each other and whispered right along with the aunts a charm they knew well enough to recite in their sleep. My lover's heart will feel this pin, and his devotion I will whim. There'll be no way for him to rest nor sleep until he comes to me to speak. Only when he loves me best will he find peace and with peace rest. Jillian made little stabbing motions, which is what the girl was to do to the dove's heart when she repeated these words for seven nights in a row before she went to bed. 
page 20. I think this is talking about Sally. She closed her eyes as soon as they brought the morning dove in. She covered her ears with her hands so she wouldn't have to listen to it shriek as they held it down on the countertop. She told herself she had cooked lamb chops, she had broiled chicken, and this wasn't so different. All the same, Sally never again ate meat or fowl or fish after that evening. She got a shivery feeling whenever a flock of sparrows or wrens perched in the trees startled and took flight. Page 24. As it turned out, the girl from the drugstore never spoke again. This is after she came back and hit one of the girls and the aunts mm. muted her, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, although sometimes she made little cooing noises, like the call of a pigeon or a dove, or when she was truly furious, a harsh shrieking that was not unlike the panic sound chickens make when they're chased, then caught for basting and broiling. Her friends in the choir wept at the loss of her beautiful voice but in time they began to avoid her Ugh. her back had become arched like the spine of a cat who had stepped onto a burning hot coal she could not hear a kind word without covering her ears with her hands and stamping her foot like a spoiled child page 28 the boys had been struck down by lightning on the town green which was where they were now buried beneath a smooth round stone where morning doves gathered at dawn and at dusk and again like they're connected to death okay. mm. Uh, 86. That evening, they were having hot dogs made out of tofu and some sort of bean that was supposed to be good for you, even though it tastes, in Kylie's opinion, like the tires of a truck. Sally refused to have meat, fish, or fowl at the table in spite of her daughter's complaints. She has to close her eyes when she walks past the packages of chicken legs in the market, and still, she's always reminded of the dove the aunts use for their most serious love charm. And then we have a jump to page 276. Sally and Jillian take the pot from the girls. Although Jillian keeps her eyes closed as they turn it over and pour out the lye, the damp earth sizzles and is hot as the mixture seeps deeper into the ground. A mist appears. It's the color of regret. It's the color of heartbreak. The gray of doves in the early morning. Uh, 283. Look here, she calls to Jillian. They're at it again. In the pot is the heart of a dove pierced with seven pins. Jillian comes to stand beside her sister. Somebody's getting spelled, that's for sure. Sally carefully puts the lid back in place. I wonder whatever happened to her. Jillian knows she's talking about the drugstore girl. And then lastly on 285, it can't be what Sally thinks. What she thinks she sees is Gary Hallett out in the garden, crouching down, digging out the cabbages, and that just cannot be. Well, look who's here. Jillian says, pleased. They did it, Sally says, with the dove's heart. As soon as he sees Sally, Gary stands, a scarecrow in a black coat, who doesn't know whether or not he should wave. They did not, Jillian says to Sally. They didn't have anything to do with it. But Sally doesn't care if Jillian phoned Gary last week and asked what on earth he was waiting for. It doesn't matter if he had the aunt's address folded in his coat pocket ever since that phone call. By the time she runs down the blue stone path, it doesn't make a bit of difference what people think or what they believe. There are some things, after all, Sally Owen knows for certain. Always throw spilled salt over your left shoulder. Keep rosemary body garden gate. Add pepper to your mashed potatoes. Plant roses and lavender for luck and fall in love whenever you can. Yeah, I was just looking up what a willowware plate looks like because I'm like, what the hell is willowware? What is it? Um, it's really pretty. It's like that old antique looking china. Mm. You've seen this pattern before. I think oh, they're yeah. from China. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very pretty. But imagine finding a dove's heart on a plate looking like this fancy in a in your refrigerator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so random. So random. So random. But that seems to be like their designated dove plate. Yeah, which is yeah, strange. So at least they're not cross-contaminating or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so then we have just a few mentions from the last book, which is the Book of Magic. And this mention is on page 16. 
It says warmer weather was predicted for the rest of the week, and yet seven days marked the start of the season that was always a delight in Massachusetts. All through the long winter, people waited for a sign for the first surge of spring, the green bark of a lilac, the murmur of a dove in the yard. While there was still a scrim of ice on Leech Lake, people came down with spring fever that made them act as if they were young again. They took risks, they stayed out late, they fell in love unexpectedly. Page 30. In tall glass jars in the pantry, there was mandrake, belladonna, mushrooms of all sorts, blue beads, black feathers, apple seeds, the hollow bones of birds, doves' hearts. The rush lasted until five, and by the time it was through, most of the daffodils had been trampled by people who wanted to make certain they got their turn bringing their problems to Jeb. And the last mention is on page 296. He recognized the wicked ingredients on the small kitchen table. Black wax, pins, black thread, matter root, belladonna, the berries of lords and ladies, the heart of a dove, a strange white bone, ashes, a black candle. Vincent sat down and placed his hands on the table, down paths, down roads, through the woods, through the village, and then nothing. The path he could see when he closed his eyes stopped in the woods. Yeah, not that, not that much about doves in the book of magic just kind of like reiterating like what's in the pantry and what they're using in their spell work yeah yeah um, yeah so right. that's that's pretty much it that wraps up all the mentions in the book yeah so we're gonna get into some science give me the deets give me the latin oh god all right all right so ready for this word col is this columbidae or columbidae 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 columbidae's it's a bird family consisting of doves and pigeons. So, yes, pigeons and doves are lumped in that same species category, okay. I guess. All right. So, it is the only family in the order Columbiforms. These are stout-bodied birds with short necks and short, slender bills that in some species feature fleshy, what's this word, series? Birds from a handful of families, including be, yeah. raptors, because we know that raptors are in the bird Rapture raptor. Rapture raptors. Birds originated from raptors, which are dinosaurs. That's so crazy. Isn't that nuts? I mean, we've all seen Jurassic Park, right? Chickens with their tiny little bodies. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So they primarily feed on plants and can be taxonomically divided amongst granivores that feed mostly on the ground on seeds and frugivores that feed mostly on fruits from branches. The family occurs worldwide, often in close proximity with humans. Because they're smart. They get all those little, snag all those little droppings. Yeah. And if you go to New York, they're basically just coexisting with people because New York is one of the populated cities in the world and Mm. pigeons are... They have no, pigeons give no fucks in New York. They will walk into stores. They will, (laughs) they're everywhere. They're everywhere. They ride the subways. Oh my God. Fucking everywhere. Columbidae contains 344 species divided into 50 genera. 59 species are listed as threatened and 13 are extinct, including the dodo bird, an island bird, and the passenger pigeon, the only bird species not restricted to a small island to go extinct in modern times, even though its flocks were counted in the billions. Uh, Mostly only by English speakers, the smaller species tend to be called doves, and the larger ones pigeons, or also known as trash Oh, you put trash doves? Yeah, they are trash doves, basically. It's crazy to me that people eat them. It's Mm, mm -hmm, gross to me. Mm. Especially if you've seen the ones in New York, because they're kind of grimy looking. (laughs) Uh, Although... 
The distinction is not consistent, and there is no scientific separation between them. Historically, the common names for these birds involve a great deal of variation. The most commonly referred to as a pigeon is the domestic pigeon or rock dove, which is common in many cities as the feral pigeon. Oh, shit. <laughs> must be New York. <laughs> yeah. That, that must be the, the city, city miles on him. He's ready to switchblade you right in the taint. Like, <laughs> pigeon with a switchblade? Yeah. <laughs> That needs to be a t-shirt. Um, so doves and pigeons <laughs> build doves and pigeons build relatively flimsy nests, often using sticks and other debris, which may be placed on branches of trees, on ledges, or on the ground, depending on the species. They lay one or usually two white eggs at a time, and both parents care for the young. Unlike most birds, both sexes of doves and pigeons produce crop milk to feed their young, secreted by a sloughing of fluid-filled cells from the lining of the crop. Unfledged baby doves and pigeons are called squabs and are generally able to fly by five weeks of age. These oh. fledglings, with their immature squeaking voices, are called squeakers, once oh. <laughs> and they leave the nest after 25 to 32 days. Since ancient times, many Columbidae species or Columbidae species have developed intricate cultural and practical relations with humans. So pigeon is a French word that derives from the Latin pipio for pipio. peeping for a peeping chick Cute. while dove is an ultimately germanic word that refers to the bird's diving flight the english dialectal word cover appears to derive from latin columba a group of doves is called a duel d-u-l-e taken from the french word d-e-u-i-l -E meaning morning as in m-o-u-r-n-i-n-g so so is, is then morning dove is morning dove redundant I guess so. Okay. It's like, yeah, morning, morning. Morning, right? morning. Morning, morning mm, mm, mm. Yeah. The name Columbidae for the family was introduced by the English zoologist William Elford Leach in a guide to the contents of the British Museum, published in 1819. Columbidae is the only living family in the order of Columbiforms. The common ground dove, Columbina passerina, is among the smallest species in the family. That's a kid's book. That's a cute name. Columbina Passarina. <laughs> yeah. Their size and appearance. The common wood pigeon, Columba Palambus, is common throughout Europe. Pigeons and doves exhibit considerable variation in size, ranging in length from 5.9 to 29.5 inches. That's and big. In from 30 grams. Yeah. To above 2,000 grams, which is four, basically four and a half pounds. So which under is, a pound to over four pounds. It, it's a big range, it seems Damn. like, yeah. The largest species is, is the crowned pigeon of New Guinea, which is nearly turkey-sized <gasps> at the weight of two to four kilograms, which is about between four and a half to 8.8 .8 pounds. That would be good eating. That's, that's a huge bird. Almost that's a 10-pound bird. bird. My cat is like 12 pounds. It's big. That's huge. The smallest is the common ground dove, Columbina passerina of the genus Columbina, which is the same size as a house sparrow. I'm sorry. Like the one that flies around the Owens house in the in okay. summer solstice. All right. Uh, weighing as little as 22 grams, so a little less, like a half a pound, mm -hmm. I guess. The dwarf fruit dove, which many measure as little as 13 centimeters or 5.1 inches, has a marginally smaller total length than any other species from this family. One of the largest arboreal species, the Marquesan imperial pigeon, currently battles extin extinction. Uh-oh. Yeah. Overall, the anatomy of Columbidae is characterized by short legs, short bills with a fleshy ser uh, ser, and small heads on large, compact bodies. 
Like some other birds, the columbidae have no gallbladders. Some medieval naturalists conclude they have no bile, which in the medieval theory of the four humors, we've talked about the four humors before, right? Yes, we have. Explain the allegedly sweet disposition of doves. Aww. In fact, however, they do have bile, as Aristotle had earlier realized, which is secreted directly into the gut. A landing collared dove, Dreptopelia dicaocto? Uh, dica, dica displays the con yeah fuck it uh displays the contour and flight feathers of its wings the wings are large and have 11 primary feathers pigeons have strong wing muscles wing muscles comprise 31 to 44 percent of their body weight and are among the strongest flyers of all birds damn in a series of experiments in 1975 by dr mark b friedman using doves their characteristic head bobbing was shown to be due to their natural desire to keep their vision constant it was shown yet again in a 1978 experiment by dr barry j frost in which pigeons were placed on treadmills it was observed that they did not bob their heads as their surroundings were constant so it seems like they just bob their heads just because they feel like they need to keep moving it gets like the prey but like, like they like nervous those, kick get those uh, pigeons on a on a diet get them walking get, get those get pigeons those, walking. get those pigeons on a treadmill that thing's like 10 that pounds cracks me up <laughs> man all right that's interesting i didn't know that i didn't know that they had to like they felt pigeons feel like they need to keep moving Mm, mm -hmm. that's why i guess they bob their heads so they didn't bob their heads when they're on the treadmill because everything around them is moving okay let's talk about their feathers okay? okay okay the feathers columbidae have unique body feathers with the shaft being generally broad strong flattened tapering <laughs> to a fine point abruptly is wormwood here is wormwood <laughs> wormwood would hang out with pigeons Oh, for sure. If Wormwood, Wormwood was the guy in the jail, right? So he was. Isn't he pigeon was the Birdman? Yeah. Isn't yeah. aren't pigeons like a uh, synonymous with jail, like a jail pigeon? Yeah, a stool pigeon. Stool pigeon, it's like a yeah. snitch. Yeah. In general, the after shaft is absent. However, small ones on some tail and wing feathers may be present. We're still talking about feathers. Body feathers have very dense, fluffy bases and are attached loosely into the skin and drop out easily possibly serving as a predator avoidance mechanism kind of like i guess how a uh reptile loses it sheds its tail right when it's nervous or tries to get away from a predator because again reptiles and birds are they do, have that they do not they do have that connection large numbers of feathers fall out in the attacker's mouth if the bird is snatched facilitating the bird's escape the plumage of the family is variable Granivorous species tend to have dull plumage with a few exceptions, whereas the frugivorous species have brightly colored plumage. The, oh god, this word, uh, Tilinopus fruit doves are some of the brightest colored pigeons with the three endemic species of Fiji and the Indian Ocean. God, these words. Electronias being the brightest pigeons and doves may be sexually monochromatic or dichromatic. In addition to bright colors, pigeons may sport crests or other ornamentation. Columbidae are excellent flyers due to the lift provided by their large wings, which results in low wing loading. I don't know what that is. They are highly maneuverable in flight and have low aspect ratio due to the width of their wings, allowing for quick flight launches and ability to escape from predators, but at a high energy cost. The zebra dove, Geopelia striata, has been widely introduced around the world. Pigeons and doves are distributed everywhere on Earth, except for the driest areas of the Sahara Desert, Antarctica, and its surrounding islands, and the high Arctic. 
they have colonized most of the world's oceanic islands, reaching eastern Polynesia and the Chatham Islands in the Pacific, Mauritius and the Seychelles in and Reunion in the Indian Ocean, and the Azores in the Atlantic Ocean. They must be very strong flyers. Yeah. Like, if they can no, I mean, they're not them. getting there all in one shot. They're probably landing on boats and stuff. Yeah. But still. Right. Impressive. Yeah. yeah. Migratory birds. Me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess just like the, the snow geese. I love right? the sound of a morning dove. It's one of my favorite. Like in the springtime. Oh. We talked about that on the Stevie episode. We're going to talk a bit, little bit about that later on in our pop culture segment. But yeah, the doves do have like a, like a pretty, like a, like a cooing sound. Yeah. Right? so much so that stevie was inspired by them to write a song about right. them. <laughs> yeah so the family has adapted to most of the habitats available on the planet these species may be arboreal terrestrial or semi-terrestrial uh, various species also inhabit savanna grassland desert temperate woodland and forest mangrove forest and even the barren sands and gravels of atolls so I guess de deserts or just barren land. Uh, the largest range of the species is that of the rock dove, also known as the common pigeon, charami, which uh, this is a French word meaning dear friend. And uh, Christina has a little tidbit about this a little later on. This species had a large natural distribution from Britain and Ireland to Northern Africa, across Europe, Arabia, Central Asia, India, the Himalayas, and up into China and Mongolia. Damn. The range of the species increased dramatically upon domestication as the species went feral in cities around the world. Oh my god. <laughs> New York City. Yeah, yeah. The common pigeon is currently resident across most of the North America and has established itself in cities and urban areas in South America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, Japan, Australia, and New Zealand. As well as the rock dove, several other species of pigeon have become established outside of their natural range after escaping captivity and other species have increased their natural Natural ranges due to habitat changes caused by human activity. A 2020 study found that the east coast of the U.S. includes two pigeon genetic megacities. Here it is, New York and Boston, and observes that the birds do not mix together. <laughs> I guess, hey, have you ever seen New Yorkers go to Boston games and Bostoners go to New York <laughs> games? They fucking hate each other. They're there to fuck it up. They're there to, they're there to throw down. They're right. So funny. <laughs> so pigeons and doves primarily rely on seeds and fruit as the main components of their diets. The family can be categorized into granivorous species, subfamily Columbinae that consume seeds, and frugivorous species from the other four subfamilies which feed on fruit and mast. Granivorous species typically feed on ground-based seeds, while frug frugivorous species prefer feeding in trees. Morphological distinctions between the two groups include granivores having thick walls in their gizzards intestines, and esophagi, while frugivores have evolved with thinner walls. Fruit-eating species have shorter intestines, whereas seed-eaters possess longer intestines. Isn't that crazy how, like, people and animals can evolve depending on, like, what their habitat requires? Consume? How yeah, much digestion something needs? How long evolution it needs to stay in your body? Mind. Yeah. Evolution just blows my freaking yeah. mind. Yeah. So fruit-eating species have shorter intestines... Whereas seed eaters possess longer intestines, frugivores exhibit the ability to cling to branches and even hang upside down to reach fruit. Oh! So maybe they have a little bit of bat inside them. Impressive. Yeah, very impressive. Apart from fruit and seeds, many species also consume various other food items. Some, like ground doves and quail doves, incorporate a significant amount of prey items such as insects and worms into their diets. The atoll fruit dove special specializes in capturing insect and reptile prey, 
while white-crowned pigeons, orange fruit doves, and ruddy ground doves consume snails, moths, and other insects. Urban feral pigeons, aka New York City pigeons, <laughs> descendants of domestic rock doves, Columbia livia, adapt to urban environments, disrupting their natural feeding habits. They rely on human activities and interactions to obtain food, often for foraging for spilled food or relying on food provided by humans. The Sirocco dove, Zenaida grisoni, has become extinct in its natural habitat, while some species of pigeons and doves have thrived due to human activity, expanding their ranges. Others have experienced population declines, with some facing the threat of extinction. Among the 10 species that have disappeared since 1600, the commonly accepted date for assessing modern extinctions, two well-known examples are the dodo and the passenger pigeon. What the fuck's a passenger pigeon? I don't know. Do they like hitchhike or something? One big enough to ride on. Yeah, maybe those are the ones that uh, migrated from on the boats across mm, the mm -hmm. ocean. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know the dodo was extinct though. Did yeah. You know? That's right? anytime you talk about the um the thinning the herd, what do you call it? Oh, like the Darwinism? Darwinism. Yeah, <laughs> wasn't he studying dodos? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So maybe they just weren't nature's brightest bird and the, hence that they did not make it make it <laughs> right so the passenger pigeon okay here we go the passenger pigeon stands out for several reasons it is the sole non-island pigeon species to have gone extinct in modern times despite once being the most abundant bird species globally hmm. the exact number of its former former population is challenging to ascertain but ornithologist alexander wilson estimated that one observed flock consisted of over two billion birds the species experienced a rapid decline in 1871. A breeding colony was estimated to have over 100 million birds, yet the last individual died by 1914. Aww. While ha habitat loss played a role, the species was extensively overhunted, serving as a food source for slaves and later for the impoverished in the United States during the 19th mm. century. Mm -hmm. The dodo's extinction represents a more typical scenario for past pigeon extinctions. Like many species colonizing remote predator-free islands, the dodo lost its predator avoidance behaviors and the ability to fly. Mm -hmm. Oh, so I guess the, it's a fly flightless away. bird. Yeah. I always thought the dodo was like big, not maybe like turkey size, like turkey uh -huh. size big. Yeah. The smaller. The arrival of humans along with the introduced species like rats, pigs, and cats hastened the demise of the dodo and other island forms that have since vanished. Um, so currently approximately 59 species of pigeons and doves face the threat of extinction, constituting around 19% of all species. Most of these species inhabit tropical regions on islands and their survival is jeopardized by introduced predators, habitat loss, and hunting, or a combination of these factors. Some may already be extinct in the wild, such as the Socorro dove of Socorro Island in Mexico. Last, It was last observed in 1972, succumbing to habitat loss and introduced feral cats. Oh my god. <laughs> in certain areas, lack of knowledge obscures the true status of a species. For instance, the Negro's fruit dove has not been sighted since 1953 and may or may not be extinct, while the Polynesian ground dove is classified as critically endangered, with uncertainty about its survival on remote islands in the far west of the Pacific Ocean. Various conservation strategies are employed to avert these extinctions, including the implementation of laws and regulations to control hunting, the establishment of protected areas to prevent further habitat loss, the creation of captive 
populations for reintroduction into the wild, and the relocation of individuals to suitable habitats to establish additional populations. Emperor Honorius, have we talked about him before? Yeah, Honorius? we did. Mm -hmm is a historically prominent individual who kept pigeons as pets. The rock dove has been domesticated for hundreds of years. It has been bred into several varieties, kept by hobbyists, of which the best known is the homing pigeon or racing homer. Other popular breeds are tumbling pigeons, such as the Birmingham roller, and fancy varieties that are bred for certain physical characteristics, such as large feathers on the feet or fan-shaped tails. Domesticated rock pigeons are also bred as carrier pigeons, used for thousands of years to carry brief written messages and release doves used in ceremonies. White doves are also used for entertainment and amusement as they are capable of solving puzzles and performing intricate tricks. And we talk a little bit about magicians a little later on. A variant called the Zorito, bred for its speed, may be used in live pigeon shooting. In this whole thing, we're also talking about pigeons they and all these articles that we're going to read that they're kind of interchangeable there are some differences between doves and pigeons though which we'll get into in a little bit so you mentioned a little earlier about the cherami we're going to talk about the domestication in the military and how they used them mm -hmm. domestications of pigeons led to a significant use of the homing pigeons for communication including war pigeons such as the 32 pigeons who were awarded with the dickon medal for brave service to their country in world war ii so let's talk about the cherami which Justina told us means dear friend. And there was information about why they worded, they spelled it out in the masculine. I'm not sure if that had to do with the military presence of mm. this masculinity. No idea. Okay. So this says, uh, in the web of military history, one figure stands out as a feathered hero whose valor surpassed the bounds of the ordinary. Cherami, the carrier pigeon of World War I. Amidst the ravages of the conflict, Cherami embodied courage under fire, delivering messages that transcended the limitations of human communication in the direst of circumstances. And there's a little um, picture here in our notes, but this was a, uh, I think I talk a little bit about it later, but this okay. little pigeon um, only has one leg. Little stand on little leg. Aww. So the year was 1918 during the Miu's Aragon offense. I'm probably not saying that right. The Major Charles White Whittlesley found himself leading more than 550 men trapped behind enemy lines on a hillside depression, bereft of food and ammunition. The grim reality of their situation was compounded by a friendly fire from Allied troops who, unaware of their location, inadvertently targeted them. Surrounded by the relentless onslaught of German forces, their survivors dwindled to a mere 194 men. In the face of communication challenges and the interception of human runners by the enemy, Major Whittlesey turned to carrier pigeons as messengers for a last resort. The first two attempts made by pigeons carrying urgent pleas for support and evacuation were tragically thwarted by enemy fire. It was then that Cherami, a one-pound carrier pigeon, took center stage in a harrowing tale of bravery. Oh my god. With a message clutched in a canister on its right leg, Cherami was dispatched with a crucial note. We are along the road parallel to 276.4. This is, I guess, latitude, longitude. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Our own military is dropping barrage directly on us. For heaven's sake, stop it. 
As it soared through the perilous skies, the Germans unleashed a barrage of gunfire. Jeremy, defying the Oz, was shot down but resiliently took flight again, covering 25 miles in a mere 25 minutes. Damn. That bird is booking. Back at Division Headquarters, Jeremy's triumph return marked a turning point for the beleaguered 194 soldiers. His injuries, including being shot through the breast, blinded in one eye, and having one leg hanging by a tendon, bore witness to the sacrifice made in the line of duty. Army medics worked tirelessly to save his life, and when Sheremy recovered enough to travel, General John J. Perishing personally saw him off on a boat to the United States. Oh, I know. Sheremy's heroic deed did not go unnoticed. The pigeon was bestowed with the... <laughs> LaCroix, the LaCroix de Gary Medal, uh, with a palm oak leaf cluster. Recognized for his gallant service in delivering 12 important messages in Verdun. His story, however, did not end on the battlefield. Cherami succumbed to his battle wounds on June 13, 1919, at Fort, Fort Monmouth, 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 New Jersey. Do you know there where that is? Yeah. Monmouth or, County. Yeah. It's uh, down south. Oh, okay. Yet his legacy endured through posthumous honors, uh, including introduction into the Racing Pigeon Hall of Fame in 1931 and a gold medal from the organized bodies of American Racing Pigeons fanciers. Oh. I know. In November 2019, Cherami was further immortalized with the Animals in War and Peace Medal of Bravery, presented at a ceremony on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. This posthumous recognition elevated Cherami to a symbol of bravery not only within military circles, but also in the broader context of animals contributing to the cause of peace and freedom. Oh. To this day, Cherami's legacy lives on, resonating with American school children from the 1920s and 30s who regarded him as a hero on par with human World War I figures. The taxidermied remains of Cherami, mounted by Nelson R. Wood, find a permanent place at the Natural Museum of Natural History, part of the Smithsonian Institute, alongside Sergeant Stubby, a Boston Terrier mascot from the U.S. Army 102nd Infantry. Jeremy stands as a testament to the indomitable spirit and sacrifice of animals in the service to humanity. The, quote, Price of Freedom exhibit at the National Museum of American History encapsulates this shared history where visitors can witness the endured legacy of Jeremy and his fellow comrades in arms. In 2021, even the bird's sex was confirmed through DNA analysis, confirming Jeremy's identity as a cockbird. A detail that further enriches the tale of this extraordinary war hero. Shedemi's courageous flights through enemy fire, his resilience in the face of grave injury, and his lasting impact on history solidified his place not only as a bird of remarkable fortitude, but as an emblem of bravery and sacrifice in the theater of war. And um, other there's declarations for valor were also awarded to those. Th there were 32 other carriers, including two pigeons, one named G.I. Joe, and the other was named as Irish Pat. That's amazing. That's so cute. That is adorable. Bird was just doing his job. No fear. No fear. He got shot down and he got back up in the air and he kept going. I gotta going. get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Oh my god. Shit, That's I mean, an amazing story. That's, <laughs> That's hits so you in the feels. I kind of want to go see him in the museum. Yeah. That's so cool. Okay, so um, since we've been interchanging these two words, dove and pigeon. the difference between a pigeon and a, a dove, I guess. All right. Yeah, so this article comes from, uh, we. I think we referenced this a little later on too, 
windmoonmagic.com. Doves and pigeons are two distinct species of birds that belong to the Columbidae family. Although they are similar in many ways, there are some important differences between doves and pigeons that set them apart. So let's talk about their physical characteristics. Doves tend to be smaller and slimmer in appearance with a more delicate and streamlined build. Pigeons are typically larger and stockier with a more robust build and a rounder head. So one's like a power lifter and the other one's like a <laughs> yoga instructor. <laughs> I love that analogy. Basically, yeah. Okay. Um, so the coloration. Doves are usually a pale gray or beige color, while pigeons can come in a variety of colors, including gray, brown, blue, and even white. And if you've ever seen the head of a pigeon, sometimes they look green or they look like that oil slick kind of color. Iridescent. They're very Very iridescent. Yeah. And then their behavior, doves are typically more shy and cautious, while pigeons are more fearless and often seen in urban environments. They are the birds from the streets and they will cut a bitch. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Diet. Both doves and pigeons feed on seeds, grains, and other plant material. However, pigeons have a more varied diet and will also feed on fruits, vegetables, and human food waste. Hmm. They will dumpster dive. And as far as their song, or I guess their whistle or whatever you want to call, whatever their call, yeah. Doves are known for their distinctive cooing song, which is soft and soothing. I always say Coraline sounds like a little dove or like a little pigeon. When, like, I'm petting her under the chin, she does that little, she's, she coos a little bit. But pigeons make a variety of sounds, including coos, whistles, and a soft clucking noise. They're like catcalling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, exactly. what's your name? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's the difference. Okay. Um, but they are from the same family, from the same species. There's some slight differences, but they the do look properties. different. They yeah. do look different. To yeah. me, a dove is very, like, poised and mm-hmm. delicate and beautiful, and pigeons are like, oh, fuck up your day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if they're using them for war, yeah, that'll tell you something about, mm-hmm. I guess. Doves are like uh, weddings. Mm-hmm. Pigeons, war, I guess. <laughs> yeah. okay. What is it good for? That's right. Absolutely nothing. All right. Are we ready for our break? We're, I'm ready. Yeah. yeah. What are we doing right. when we come back? All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to do our card pull from the Inner Witch Oracle. Then we're going to talk about some cultural and religious symbolism. And we're going to talk about pigeons as messengers as well as some pop culture and some of the songs that there's been so many songs throughout history about putting doves in song. And then you have a little bit about an Alice Hoffman book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. When we come back then. Yeah. I can't wait to talk about that. So all that and more when we come back. Hey, little witches. The scene is here. If you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you would know how much we love using the Practical Magic Inner Witch Oracle Deck by Grounded by the Moon. And now we want to share the magic of Grounded by the Moon with you, our listeners. Joseph Benitez Egerton, the creator behind Grounded by the Moon, would like to offer this very special 10% off discount to all who wish to experience the magic of his Practical Magic-themed tarot and oracle decks. But that's not all. He also creates other divination tools like tarot workbooks, deck bags and altar cloths, pendulum kits, oil blends, cleansing sprays, smoke wands, teas, and ritual kits. And let's not forget about his custom handcrafted all-natural soy candles, where every candle is hand-poured and personally infused and charged under the light of the moon. They even come with a crystal. And did we mention all of the ingredients in the candles are ethically sourced? 
All of Joseph's offerings are just so magical. So go visit groundedbythemoon.com and use the coupon code Magnolia Magic for 10% off your entire order at checkout. That's M-A-G-N-O-L-I-A-M-A-G-I-C. So get your discount today. And you're listening to Magnolia Street Podcast. I think there's a bird card, but I don't remember if it was sparrow or dove. Let's see. Mm. Let me know when to stop. Stop. What's that? Oh, blood mm. on the moon. Blood on the moon. And this keyword is destiny. Interesting. The pick of destiny. Yeah. We read this card for our blood on the moon episode, I'm pretty sure, right? I'm already seeing like the night they saw the dove, they sealed their fates, their destinies, as we talked mm-hmm. about in the uh, the spinning your fate episode. Mm-hmm. Like after that night, it changed everything in their lives. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I think so. This card. Yeah. So keywords, destiny and fate. So turn to the moon and call upon her guidance and magic. Follow the light of the moon and let her guide your way. She is offering you a message. You should not resist or fight. This is your destiny. Know that you are on the right path. Listen to the moon and be ready to accept the next important step coming into your life. Your path is paved and ready. You just need to find it. Engage with this divine energy to continue pushing ahead. The universe is not only protecting you, but it is walking alongside you, assisting you, and supporting your actions. Don't fight your destiny. Embrace it. And the mantra on the card is, I follow the illuminated path before me. So I I agree with kind of what you were saying. Like once that bird came into play, Sally retreated a little bit, but Jillian's curiosity was piqued exactly and it's interesting to think like was that their first time seeing that and because they maybe they felt like emboldened because their magic you know they were feeling witchy and they were hanging with the aunts the aunts are cool like they're like all right we're gonna check out what business business hours look like i think that was the first time they ever witnessed that because Mm. their reactions were so pure yeah. Right? Like yeah. they never had seen that before. And that seemed like an initial reaction to what they the aunts were doing in that moment, in that scene. I'm finding like an interesting juxtaposition between Sally in the previous scene where she was like, she was killing it with her magic. She was in that book of spells. She was reverse blowing that candle, right? Mm-hmm. And the aunts were like blowing smoke up her ass. Like, good job, Sally. Good job. And she's <laughs> like, yeah, I could do this witchcraft shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And then Jillian was kind of the one like, what's my magic? And then on the flip side, on the next scene, when that love spell is introduced, then Sally is kind of like, oh, I don't know about this anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I want to do this witch stuff anymore. She sees the and, underbelly of it. And now Jillian's kind of like, it kind of flipped the script there. And then Jillian's like, I want it. I, <laughs> I want it. <laughs> you know, wait to fall in love. Like, tell me more. Yeah. Like, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting how between those two scenes, we really saw the difference between two sisters. Yeah, you're right. I like that. Right? Mm-hmm. So I guess the dove was kind of that catalyst for, I guess, the both of them then, because we saw how Sally reacted to magic in the previous scene, and now we're seeing how Jillian is being called to her magic. Yeah, Sally likes when it's, like, nice and light and bright and, you yeah. know, love and yeah. light. But Yeah, so I think the to... dove definitely brought that, I guess, juxtaposition to And light. she's experienced loss, but I don't think they've seen, like, desperation of a woman you know yeah, in that 100 you know, that darkness that path where where it will drive you it'll drive you to some pretty dark places yeah man 
talking about the key, the blood on the moon, that the symbol on the card, we saw where that, that it, drove, it drove Jillian to that place in that dark motel, that seedy motel and the depths of despair and like an abusive relationship. The like, evanescence. <laughs> Sudbury. Yeah. So, you know, it kind of came full circle, I think, for Jillian in that moment. Like, oh, this is what love is. Yeah, man. Let's hop in to some Llewellyn information about culture and religious symbolism with the dove. This is called the healing wisdom of birds, the spirit of the dove. It says the dove is one of those birds whose imagery is universal. It is a symbol of hope, purity, and faith, but many people would never think to look any deeper into its complex and ancient past. While researching for their book, it's entitled The Healing Wisdom of Birds, they poured through a vast pile of mythologies, goddess images, and religious associations centered upon birds and found a history of the dove much more intriguing than that of the modern-day archetype. They say, if we cast an eye back towards civilizations of ancient Crete, Egypt, and Greece, we can see the dove predominant as a cultural icon, harmonizing the apparent duality of sexuality and spiritual love. Although revered as a symbol of peace in many places, the dove is usually seen as an embodiment of the goddess and her divine powers. In Mycenaean iconography, the dove and the goddess motif appear as early as the 16th century BCE. The icon later spread throughout Greece, eventually evolving into the Greek goddess Aphrodite, the world's favorite deity of amor. Aphrodite is Venus, there it is, the connection there, mm -hmm. in the Roman pantheon. Had the dove as her primary bird companion, not as a symbol of hope or faith, but as a profound essence of fertility that springs from sexual and emotional love. It all comes back to sex. Mm -hmm. right. In an ancient Minoan pantheon, the goddess who overruled fertility and procreation had the dove as her sacred bird. The dove personifies the idea of union with the source of life that sexual energy and spiritual both thrive to fulfill. It is an enduring symbol of the soul, but at the same time reveals the connection between earthly love and the human need to reunite with the divine. Doves, like the goddess they adorned, have brought together the fundamentals of human experience in mythologies, art, and many religions, unifying divine love with erotic love into one spiritual experience. This reveals to us the undeniable relationship between the two aspects of human nature. But later cultures downplay the dove's role as a sacred image of sexuality. It as always, it's always downplayed. <laughs> and as time passed, alienated the dove from its primary symbolic foundations. The dove remains a lingering presence in the modern world, adorning holiday cards and church paintings. But the dove carries such a complex wisdom that is long cherished and universally celebrated. It is an epitaph of Aphrodite. The dove was a potent force of fertility and higher love. Later, this bird came to be the sacred bird of Bacchus, the Roman god of fertility, wine, and ecstasy. Um, would that also be, who's the Greek one? Dionysus. Mm. Many of these associations are distant today and frowned upon by more, quote, conservative organizations and religious belief systems. Why the dove? How does a quiet, ground-feeding little bird come to evoke such potent imagery from culture to culture? It is not a high-flying predator like the hawk, or an entertainer like the blue jay, or a graceful swimmer like the swan. And yet, its mythologies abound and its presence celebrated 
for its quiet, humble, and unrivaled purity. The dove mates for life, expressing that old-fashioned idea of loyalty and true love. They are affectionate and amorous birds and demonstrate unconditional love toward their companions and their young. The dove reminds the universal mind of the contentment and joys of domestic bliss, but it seems to signal something higher and more esoteric than just domestic simplicity. It is a purpose to be found, an ideal to pursue, and a gentle nudge toward the light of something more divine than ourselves. There are, of course, many such birds that inspire the human heart to inner exploration, but the dove carries a unique place in the grand sphere of bird symbolism. In the tarot, the dove is seen nesting in a goblet, oh yeah, on the Ace of Cups card, uh -huh. gracefully depicting the everlasting life of the spirit and the quest for the Holy Grail. When we look at history's spiritual avatars, the Buddha, Christ, Mother Mary, and many powerful deities in comparison, like Zeus, Inanna, Venus, and Hechiman, we find the dove perched nearby as a loyal companion and sometimes an alternative form. Many stories of divine visitations include a radiant white dove as a symbol of God or alternatively the spirit of God. In the Bible, John the Baptist commented how the spirit of God descended upon him like a dove in Matthew 3.16 and most people know of the dove's role on Noah's Ark. Many cultures, even today, have symbolically released doves as a gesture of freedom, hope, and most predominantly the release of the spirit from the confines of the physicality after death. A more contemporary ceremony involves the releasing of doves at weddings to signal the promise of fidelity, love, and a peaceful home. Although this is not a practice that holds the doves best interest in mind yeah i was actually researching a little bit into that like what the fuck happens to the doves after they release them they were saying oftentimes they're trained enough that they can they go back to their owners they go back to the i guess the trainer or whatever uh-huh uh -huh. but in other more unfortunate cases they either get hit by cars i guess there's a tiktok video i saw of a dove just getting released and it get like a, a oh, tractor trailer comes yeah, and hits yeah, it yeah. like right as it gets released so sad and then also, they also get eaten by hawks if not if they don't make it back to their owners. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. So not the most ethical uh, way to symbolize a new marriage. No. Do something else. Do something else. <laughs> yeah. So this uh, last little bit says, although the doves have such an extensive symbolic past, the bird's fame, particularly as a symbol of peace, was solidified when 19... We have a lot more on this later. Mm. Pablo Picasso made this image famous in 1949 when the World Peace Congress in Paris chose his lithographs, La Colombe, the dove, as its emblem. From that point on, the dove became a symbol of the peace movement and has remained such an integral part of the human psyche ever since. Many people in busy modern world walk by such birds, indeed all birds, with very little thought as to what they once stood for. Researching over 40 birds for their book, The Healing Wisdom of Birds, uh, they were cast back in time when everything had some kind of otherworldly meaning, when each individual bird was once a god or a goddess or carried a powerful message to the human spirit. And they continue on to say the distant past of bird symbolism finds a new light in the world. As they inch closer and closer to environmental disaster, birds need a voice in the desolate wilderness of civilization. So the next time you wander outdoors, cast an eye upwards to see what wise and ancient creatures may be watching for you from its perch. It may just be a god in feathered guise. I've always felt like a, not a connection with birds, but like I had a bird growing up. I had Me a too. cockatiel. Did you yeah, have a we talked about this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it was a female bird, but we didn't know it was a female bird. So when we first got it, we named it Spike. <laughs> it kind of seems like a masculine name. That's dope. Until she started laying eggs. Mm -hmm. 
And then we started calling her Spikealina. but like she was my buddy like she was Mm. my study buddy she would always perch on my shoulder while i was like doing my homework oh you would poop all over everything yeah yeah um and then you know she would fly around and she would land on me and like i I would catch her or like i would throw her and she would circle the room and then come back to me like she was the best until she wasn't like i guess like being egg bound because she was egg bound that's eventually what killed her Mm. um I guess it just made her a cranky bitch. Mm-hmm. After she a cranky bitch too. Yeah, she just became egg bound and just a bitter old woman, and then she passed away sadly. I guess from the from all the eggs, she constantly churning out eggs. Got to be nothing to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they were not fertilized, right? They're just eggs. Right. So. Yeah, I always look to the birds. Anytime there's like a something different, any little stirring, or if I notice like a bird has gone in a specific direction over me i'm like what does that mean what is that like lately with all the bird migrations and like we have the canada geese flying around Mm -hmm. but we have sometimes these big like big i don't herds tribes of you know the birds that are just in these big clusters and to me it's like so magical and biblical and look like i stop whatever i'm doing because there has to be something in that there has to be a yeah, message. for sure. Yeah, I definitely think seeing like a huge cluster of birds flying overhead, it is kind of spine chilling. It's like, what is mm-hmm. that? Yeah, exactly. What does that mean? What does it mean? Um, one other thing that it has a meaning in my life anyway, we have a lot of cardinals and blue jays around my house. Mm-hmm. And I remember when, like shortly after my grandfather had passed, he passed in February of 2018. And that following June, we had got our ha- this house. We were still living in my parents' house shortly after our wedding, but in june we got this house and i was seeing a lot of cardinals around and i was like what does that mean cardinals what does that mean and i was looking at looking up cardinals seeing a lot of cardinals it's a message from a loved one that has passed on mm. and i'm like i just like put the two and two together i was like oh well that makes sense yeah. my grandfather he would walk around the house whistling oh that's cute so i'm like of course he would come back as a fucking bird that's adorable just made sense so i was like every time i see a cardinal it makes me think of my grandfather mm-hmm. and every time i see a butterfly it makes me think of my grandmother oh i have like yeah, different sweet. different animals for different mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so anyway so we're gonna talk a little bit about pigeons as messengers and it's about to get a little more biblical now right nice um so the story of noah in the bible describes one of the earliest uses of the pigeon as a messenger. Noah sent the pigeon from the ark to see if the deluge was over. It was sent a few times before it came back with a branch of an olive tree in its beak, which proved to Noah that the waters had begun to subside. There are even earlier writings such as the Sumerian Epic of Gilgamesh that also include a story about a great flood and how a pigeon played a role of the messenger. Tablets found in Mesopotamia, areas around Iraq and Iran of today, as well as Egyptian hieroglyphics suggest that pigeons were being domesticated by both civilizations already around 3000 BCE. Damn. Eventually, in time, they learned how to use their homing instincts for communication purposes. For example, the Egyptians would release pigeons in order to announce to the people the rise of a new pharaoh. There are records that indicate that Phoenician merchants used to take pigeons on their ships during their business trips in the Mediterranean and would let them go where, whenever they needed to release information about their business tours. Oh shit. Marketing. So, uh, marketing. (laughs) The marketing pigeon? What? The Greeks used carrier pigeons to release the results of the Olympic Games and to send messages about victories in their battlefields. Frontinus, the Roman writer, tells about the use of carrier pigeons by Julius Caesar. 
There are documents about the existence of columbarium in Rome that contained over 5,000 pigeons. Conquerors throughout history, such as Hannibal and Geng Genghis Khan, also used pigeon posts as a communication network. The added value for using pigeons as message carriers in the ancient world was quite significant. When compared to other means of long-distance communication in ancient times, such as smoke, drums, and human messengers, pigeon carriers provided a more private and discreet way of transferring messages. Makes sense. Yeah. Or if, you, uh, if you're if you in the world of Harry Potter, they usually use owls, right? Don't Owl. they use the owls as the car message carriers? Right. So between the end of the 12th century to the mid-13th century CE, the use of carrier pigeons reached its peak. Marco Polo, in his writings, mentions in admiration the extensive use of carrier pigeons in the East. The use of carrier pigeons was so so well known in the 1800s that many people believed it was the carrier pigeon. In 1815, that brought the message of Napoleon's defeat in the Battle of Waterloo to Nathan Rothschild, three days before Wellington's human messenger. Mm. So much quicker than, I guess, an on-foot message. Mm -hmm. This was their internet back in the day, yeah. right? It was like a I text mean, message. Yeah, as the crow flies, <laughs> as the dove flies, much faster right. than uh, somebody would have to go on foot through roads yeah. or... Right. This has been disputed by a Rothschild family biographer. A few years later, however, pigeons were used by the Young Reuters Agency to communicate stock exchange information between Germany and Belgium. God dang, what the yeah. fuck? Stock, stock exchange pigeon. Wow. During 1870 to 71, during the war between Prussia and France, messages were sent from and to seized Paris. This was the only way of communication between the city to the neighboring towns. During the British mandate over Palestine, carrier pigeons were used by the Jewish organizations. In 1948, during the War of Independence, carrier pigeons were used by the Israeli army to send and receive messages from the seized city of Jerusalem when other means of communications failed. The development of technology and new means of communication have resulted in a reduction in use of carrier pigeons, but their place in history is recognized, well appreciated, and remembered. Columbarium is structure for the rever reverential and usually public storage of funerary urns holding cremains of the dead. The term comes from the Latin columba, the, a dove, originally solely referring to the compartmentalized housing for doves and pigeons, also called dovecotes. More on Aww. this in a little bit. Okay. So the habitat of sacrificing was common practice in the ancient world. At that time, human sacrifice was experienced, I was going to say experimental, experienced oh, in Central America, some tribes in Africa, and some ancient tribes in Europe, like the Germans and Celts. In ancient Greece, human sacrifice was a practice in order to appease the gods. Also in Egypt and Mesopotamia, this was a practice in times of crisis. For example, Mesha, king of Moab, sacrificing his son, Kings 2, 3, 27. So I looked more into this. This sacrificing his son was apparently to avert a military disaster. Oh, shit. Um, and this comes out of the, the New American Standard Bible. It says, then the king of Moab took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. Great anger came upon Israel. And they departed from him and returned to their own land. Oh, so shit. Like, they're, they're, this motherfucker's crazy. He just killed so his son. Like, we got to go home. He, so he did it once. It worked. And then everybody after that was like, all right, well, that works. So let's yeah, just yeah, keep yeah. sacrificing people to avert the war. Yeah. The wars. Okay. Um, not sure how to say this name. Jephthah. 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 Of Galadite. Giladite. 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 To fulfill uh -huh. his pledge to God, sacrificed his daughter in Judges 3, 31. 
It says, God's spirit came upon Jephthah. Sorry. He went across Gilead and Manasseh and from there approached the Ammonites. Jephthah made a vow before God. If you give me a clear victor over the Ammonites, then I'll give to God whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in one piece from among the Ammonites. I'll offer it up in a sacrificial burnt offering. And the next thing that came out of the door was his daughter. So he sacrificed his daughter. So um, just want you to take, take a little note, folks, and follow the Bible a little closer and then the herd. <laughs> I'm going to take another note and never leave my house if my dad's going <laughs> to sacrifice me to the gods. <laughs> So when people are like, oh, I follow the Bible, I follow the Bible. Uh -huh. Do you? Yeah. So oh the Bible God. condemned human sacrifice and called for a substitute. As clearly indicated in the story of Abraham and Isaac, we touched on a little earlier, Justina, put those threads together. According to the biblical law of sacrifices, in particular Leviticus, it is imperative that sacrifice should only be of small cattle, goats, sheep, or of a pure fowl or a bird so like doves i guess are said to be pure yeah pigeons fit in this category plus which they had an advantage over other options because they were easily to breed therefore they fulfilled at least two basic needs they served as a source of food and as an object that was acceptable for sacrifice as a result a flourishing industry developed for cultivating pigeons okay so do you think that because it fit in those two categories they served as a source of food and an object acceptable for sacrifice they sacrificed the animal and then they were able to eat it so eat it didn't it, at maybe. least it didn't go to waste maybe i'm not sure yeah because like usually when we leave offering and this is like eons separated in time yeah. but like when we leave an offering for an ancestor or not you don't eat it right, right? you bury it or like what do you do with yeah. it you know and like exactly like and with in the odds case when they you know stab that pigeon with that needle or they have the dove heart on in, on that plate in the fridge do they bury it do they yeah. eat it what do they do with it i wonder if that's good for your compost no I'm sure meat no meat you make can't be good for your compost well i don't know it decomposes right so oh, no. i mean dog shit's good for your compost so i don't fucking know. Oh, no. i don't i don't i don't know much about composting so i really don't yeah. know but i'm just wondering like what what do they do with it after they're done with their spell work or this whatever they're digging i know yeah i don't know yeah. but right. in the beginning they were bred in small structures that were called dovecotes and with time they were cultivated in larger structures then called the columbariums hundreds of ancient columbria have been found in israel a few dozen of them in and around the city of jerusalem most of them were built in man-made caves. The others were built above ground in forms of towers. These were found in the city of David, Jericho, Masada, Herodium, and in other cities in Jerusalem, dating back to the Hellenistic and early Roman periods. Most of those that were built above ground did not survive. Some that were created under the ground remained in good shape. A number of them, found close to Biet Govrin, southwest of Jerusalem, were shown in the pictures on this page. You can visit. Um, we'll supply the links just google dovecoats mm -hmm. the relative softness of the limestone that existed at the foothills of jerusalem helped to create the underground structures these were created in round shapes square shapes and or complexes that included several rooms and halls with connections among them i'm picturing like catacombs almost mm. in the walls of these rooms hundreds of niches were dug each big enough to allow a mother pigeon to lay two eggs and grow her baby squabs. These complexes contain sometimes thousands of pigeons. Oh, can you imagine the smell? Oh, Their droppings were used to fertilize the agricultural land around them, thereby introducing the additional benefit to the industry. 
Columbariums can also be found in many places around the world, England, Scotland, Wales, France, Central Europe, Italy, etc. It is possible that the Romans introduced the practice into the conquered areas. In medieval times, raising pigeons was often considered the right of nobility, and as a result, you can find dovecotes that are still standing beside their castles. In France, a dovecote is usually built out of rocks or brick or cob. You can find dovecotes in France that could accommodate over 2,000 pigeons. The pigeons were encouraged to breed in clay, basins, and sometimes braided wicker baskets. I've been watching Stanley Tucci's tour of Italy on HBO Max. I feel like I saw him, he visited, if it was him, it might have been a different show. They visited, it was like a cave, and mm -hmm. there were holes in the cave for pigeons or doves, and that's how they would, I guess the village would eat. Mm. The doves in these holes. Okay. They breed in these holes, and that so the they would never go hungry. Like they always had food, some source of food. Yeah. All right. So we'll talk a little bit about dove symbolism. So doves, typically domestic pigeons, white in plumage, are used in many settings as symbols of peace, freedom, or love. Doves appear in the symbolism of uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and paganism, and of both military and pacifist groups. The archaeological discovery of lifelike pigeon images besides the figurines of the goddess, dating from the Bronze Age between 2400 and 1500 BC, in Sumerian Mesopotamia confirms these ancient roots. Worship of the goddess and her bird spread to Crete, where she was depicted with doves on her head, and also to Cyprus, where the birds can be seen on Roman coins perching on the temple rooftops. In the Greco-Roman classical world, Aphrodite, also Venus, uh, was regarded primarily as the goddess of love, to whom pigeon offerings were made in exchange for blessings and favors in such matters, while Demeter, or Ceres, another version of the mother goddess, sometimes borrowed the dove symbol. Hachiman, Hera, Irene, Irene! Irene! And Ishtar. Who the hell's Irene? Who's Irene? <laughs> is our goddess Irene? That a, look it up. Look it up. Okay. Also remembers that the dove is a symbol in Christianity. Also spelled E-I-R-E-N-E. -E. Okay. Oh! Oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, more commonly known in English as peace is one of the Hore, the personification and goddess of peace in Greek mythology and ancient religion. She was depicted in art as a beautiful young woman carrying a cornucopia, scepter, and a torch. Um, she usually is said to be the daughter of Zeus and Themis and thus sister of Dike and Enomia. Her Roman equivalent uh, goddess is Pax. Interesting. Uh, Irene. Irene. No chill Irene. So doves, Irene. Did I know something? I'm so blown away. I, I am also blown away. Um, so um, as far as mythology, early 5th century BC statue of Aphrodite from Cyprus showing her wearing a cylinder crown and holding a dove. In ancient Mesopotamia, doves were prominent animal symbols of Inanna Ishtar, the goddess of love, sexuality, and war. Doves are shown on cultic objects associated with Inanna as early as the beginning of the 3rd millennium BC. Lead dove figurines were discovered in the temple of Ishtar at Ashur, dating to the 13th century BC, and a painted fresco from Mardi, Syria, shows a giant dove emerging from a palm tree in the temple of Ishtar, indicating that the goddess herself was sometimes believed to take the form of a dove. In the ancient Levant, dove were used as symbols for the Canaanite mother goddess Asherah. The ancient Greek word for dove was peristera, which may be derived from the Semitic phrase para 
Ishtar, meaning bird of Ishtar. In classical antiquity, doves were sacred to the Greek goddess Aphrodite, who absorbed this association with doves from Inanna Ishtar. Aphrodite frequently appears with doves in ancient Greek pottery. The temple of Aphrodite Pandemos, on the southwest slope of the Athenian Acropolis, was decorated with relief sculptures of doves with knotted fillets in their beaks, and votive offerings of small white marble doves were discovered in the temple of Aphrodite. During Aphrodite's main festival, the Aphrodisia, her altars would be purified with the blood of a sacrificed dove. Mm. Aphrodite's associations with doves influenced the Roman goddess Venus and Fortuna, causing them to be associated with doves as well. So the love spells. The love spells. The love That's spells. why they're using the dove. Yeah. Because it's Aphrodite. Boom. There okay. it is. Aphrodite, Venus, all the love gods, goddesses. Sexuality. Desire. Desire. Irene. Irene. <laughs> Making all these connections. Crazy. In the Japanese mythology, Doves are Hachiman's familiar spirit. Hachiman is the syncretic divinity of archery and archery. a war incorporating elements from both Shinto and Buddhism. Didn't you say before that the things on the page look like archer arrows? I'm just saying. Oh, um, what? Wow. Wow. Blowing my mind. Yeah. All right. All right. So, so uh, a little bit about Judaism. According to the biblical story, Genesis 8, 11, a dove was released by Noah after the flood in order to find land. So we talked, we touched briefly before about this. It came back carrying a freshly plucked olive leaf. In Hebrew, it's alais zaif, a sign of life after the flood and of God's bringing Noah, his family, and the animals to land. Rabbinic literature interpreted the olive leaf as the young shoots of the land of Israel or the dove's preference for bitter food in God's service, rather than sweet food in the service of men. Do you remember how old Noah was? No. 600? He was 600. Oh, yeah, we talked about this in the Gustav episode, right? 600, guys, come on. 600 years this old. This folklore is insane. Right. Um. So the Talmud compares the spirit of God hovering over the waters to a dove that hovers over her young. In post-biblical Judaism, souls are envisioned as bird-like, a concept that may be derived from the biblical notion that dead spirits, quote, chirp. The guff or treasury of souls is sometimes described as a columbarium, a dove coat. This connects it to a related legend, the palace of the bird's nest, the dwelling place of the Messiah's soul until his advent. The Vilna Gaon explicitly declares that a dove is a symbol of the human soul. The dove is also a symbol of the people of Israel, an image frequently repeated in Midrash. In Christianity, the symbolism of the dove is first found in the Old Testament book of Genesis in the story of Noah's Ark, and the dove came into him at eventide, and lo, in her mouth an olive leaf plucked off, so Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. Genesis 8:11. And also in the New Testament Gospels of Matthew and Luke, both passages describe after the baptism of Jesus, respectively, as follows, quote, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway from the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him, end quote. And in Matthew 3, 16, And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. Uh, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased, end quote. In Luke 3, 22, the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus and appearing in the bodily form of a dove is mentioned in the other two Gospels as well. See Mark 1, 10 and John 1, 32. Mm. Um, so white doves and olive branches pictured in the 
they're pictured in the coat of arms at the Diocese of Tampere. Uh, the use of a dove and olive branch as a symbol of peace originated with the early Christians, who portrayed the act of baptism accompanied by a dove holding an olive branch in its beak, and also used the image on their, what's that word, sepulchres? I totally lost my spot. What is that? Uh, a tomb. Mm. It's a tomb, a repository for the remains of the dead. So, wasn't I saying like uh, catacombs? Yeah, yeah, Under, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Christians derive the symbol of the dove and the olive branch from Greek thought, including its use of the symbol of the olive branch and the story of Noah and the flood. Although Jews never used the dove as a symbol of peace, it acquired that meaning among early Christians, confirmed by Saint Augustine of Hippo. Hippo in his book on Christian doctrine and it became well established. In Christian iconography, a dove also symbolizes the Holy Spirit in reference to Matthew 3.16 and Luke 3.22 where the Holy Spirit is compared to a dove at the baptism of Jesus. Jesus. The early Christians in Rome incorporated into their funerary art the image of a dove carrying the an olive branch, often accompanied by the word peace. It seems that they derived this image from the simile in the Gospels, combining it with the symbol of the olive branch, which had been used to represent peace by the Greeks and Romans. The dove and olive branch also appeared in Christian images of Noah's Ark. The 4th century Vulgate translated the Hebrew alai zait, the leaf of olive, in Genesis 8.11 as Latin ramum olive, branch of olive. By the 5th century, Augustine of Hippo wrote in On Christian Doctrine that perpetual peace is indicated by the olive branch Olie Ramusculo, which the dove brought with it and then returned it to the ark. In the earliest Christian art, the dove represented the peace of the soul rather than civil peace, but from the 3rd century, it began to appear in depictions of conflict in the Old Testament, such as Noah and the ark, and in the Apocrypha, such as Daniel and the lions and the three young men in the furnace, and Susanna and the elders. I don't know any of these stories. I I, these Bible stories seem off. I've never chain. read the Bible that in-depth to know any of these. Oh, like what were, what were we calling it christian folklore i don't know yeah, what christian mythology i don't know christian mythology i'm sorry um I'm sorry. I, know, I know the basic stories but this is like really going down the uh, rabbit hole catholics are not big on the scripture they go to church they get told they cherry pick they, they cherry get, pick they get told what's in the bible but then when they're like oh let me go check that out people are like no 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 don't look at it we'll tell you <laughs> what it says they don't encourage us to go looking right right all right so before the peace of constantine around 313 a.d in which rome ceased its persecution of christians following constantine's conversion noah was normally shown in an attitude of prayer a dove with an olive branch flying toward him or alighting on his outstretched hand according to Graydon snyder the the noah story afforded the early christian community an opportunity to express piety and peace in a vessel that withstood the threatening environment of roman persecution according to ludwig bude and pierre prigant the dove referred to the descending of the holy spirit rather than the peace associated with noah after the peace of constantine when persecution ceased noah appeared less frequently in christian art medieval illuminated manuscripts such as the holcomb bible showed the dove returning to Noah with the branch. Wycliffe's Bible, which translated the Vulgate into English in the 14th century, uses, quote, a branch of olio tree with green leaves. Okay. A branch of olive tree with green leaves. Yeah. <laughs> in layman's terms. In Genesis 8.11. In the Middle Ages, some Jewish illuminated manuscripts also show Noah's dove with an olive branch. For example, the golden Haggadah, about 1420. 
Mandeism, sometimes known as Nasoranism or Sabianism. It's a Gnostic, monotheistic, and ethnic religion with Greek, Iranian, and Jewish influences. White doves, known as Bayin, Bayin, B-A-I-N, Mandaic, symbolize the spirit Ruha in Mandaic. Sacrifices of white doves are also performed during some Mandaean rituals, such as the Tabahara Masikta. I've never heard about this in my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've never heard of Mandyism. Mandy Moorism? Mandy Moorism! I wanna be with you. <laughs> my favorite song. Um, Islam. So doves and the pigeon family in general are respected and favored because they are believed to have assisted the final prophet of Islam, Muhammad, in distracting his pursuers outside the cave of Thor in the great Hira. As the prophet took refuge within the cave, a pair of pigeons and a spider were sent to settle at the entrance of the cave, the spider creating a web and the pigeons creating a nest that they laid eggs in. Thus, the prophet's pursuers assumed that, as both animals wouldn't have settled there if there were any disturbances, the prophet and his companion Abu Bakr couldn't have taken refuge there, sparing them from the capture. Judaism refers to the dove as a messenger of hope and peace, the story of Noah, as we talked about before, and you find the dove used as an allegory in King Solomon's Song of Songs about love and beauty. In China, the dove historically symbolized fidelity and longevity. There were superstitions in medieval Europe that claimed that devils and witches could turn themselves into birds, but not into doves, suggesting the purity of the dove. Um, interesting because in Magic Lessons, on the flip side, didn't they think Maria turned herself into the crow or the raven, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Dark bird, because yeah. they thought she was a witch. Well, she was a witch, but they, they were like, <laughs> that she's turning into a bird that's why her arm is broken uh -huh. right because then they, they shot a bird and then didn't she have like a she was like thing? pounding on john's door and she broke a bone in her hand or something yeah so they yeah. associated the two um i need to read that book again i'm so dusty on all of me too details um so peace and pacifism in politics that's a mouthful of peas mm -hmm. a white dove and olive branch stained glass window in the denison saint sebastian church in cruft germany Doves are associated with the concept of peace and pacifism. They often appear in political cartoons, on banners and signs at events promoting peace, such as the Olympic Games, at various anti-war, anti-violence protests, and in pacifist literature. A person who is a pacifist is sometimes referred to as a dove. Similarly, in American politics, a person who advocates the use of military resources as opposed to diplomacy can be referred to as a hawk. Oh, so on the there you go. side, yeah. Again, so Picasso's lithograph, La Colombe, the dove, a traditional realistic picture of a pigeon without an olive branch, was chosen as an emblem for the World Peace Council in Paris in April 1949. At the 1950 World Peace Congress in Sheffield, Picasso said that his father had taught him to paint doves, concluding, quote, I stand for life against death. I stand for peace against war, end quote. At the 1952 World Peace Congress in Berlin, Picasso's dove was depicted in a banner above the stage. Anti-communists had their own take on the peace dove. The group Pai et Liberté distributed posters titled La Colombe qui fait, uh, qui fait, qui fait, uh, qui fait, La Colombe qui fait boom, <laughs> the dove that goes boom, <laughs> showing the peace dove metamorphosizing into a Soviet tank. Mm. What are your, we're going to talk about him more a little later. Yeah. What are your thoughts on Picasso? He's not my favorite artist. I did some studies of his work in art school. Was it his blue era? He's the one that had the blue, the like the the depressed, the depressed. Or was that Van Gogh? 
Picasso also went through like a blue phase. Of course he did. He had a um he did a a painting of a girl holding a guitar. Oh, and, that's right. Yeah, 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 right? yeah. Mm -hmm. Or was that the project? I, I don't remember what the exact project was, but I had to recreate that painting, but in like I think I've seen your representation of that. I think yeah, I've seen so, yours. So I did a replica of the uh Picasso's girl with the guitar, but I did it in the style of Van Gogh's blue period. That's cool. Yeah. Okay. And then I made the guitar red to match my own guitar. <laughs> nice. So I always okay. get those two confused. Maybe that's why. But okay. cubism, not my favorite medium. He also did Guernica, which is a fascinating piece, though. I, always I don't really know liked, anything about it. I always really like Guernica. And if you look up Guernica, it's that like really war torn. It's long. It's like a long painting. And the whole um, painting symbolizes kind of a war. And the figures in that painting always like fascinated me for some reason. It's just. The style of that painting is really cool, but in general, would I consider myself a Picasso fan? Not necessarily. I think I'm more of a Van Gogh person. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah I have the same feelings about Picasso. I think about Neil Young. I think, <laughs> but I do like what yeah. he has to say. I stand for life against death, and I stand for yes. peace against war. I love that. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Very good. Is his picture? Is his piece of this stuff any good? You guys look it up and be the judge. I'm not super I impressed, but. Put a photo below so yeah it'll be in our show notes if you guys want to see it or you can just google it too <laughs> yeah um so do you want to take us into some doves and pigeons use in magic now we're gonna talk a little bit about witchcraft <laughs> yeah and i guess people who do uh use or maybe call in doves pigeons in their magic i can't yeah. think of i think peace harmony is if I'm going to use an image of a dove or maybe make one out of like salt clay or something like that, that's where mm -hmm. I would gear mine towards. But this yeah. is from that windmoonmagic.com we you had sourced earlier, right? Right. So they say that pigeons and doves are birds that have been associated with magic and spirituality for centuries. In modern witchcraft, these birds are often associated with peace, love, communication. Doves are often associated with peace and love and are often used in spells and rituals to promote these qualities in a relationship or in the world at large. They are also seen as messengers of the divine, carrying prayers and wishes to the spirit world. Pigeons, on the other hand, are often associated with communication and understanding. In some cultures, pigeons are seen as messengers of the divine, bringing messages of peace, love, and harmony. They are also associated with the element of air, which is associated with communication, thought, and intuition. Ayo, Gemini. Uh, and, and Libra and Aquarius. In modern witchcraft, doves and pigeons can be used in a variety of ways to harness their energies and bring about desired outcomes. Here are some ways that modern witches might use these birds in their magical practices. Number one, love spells. There you go. Doves are associated with peace and love, and they can be used in spells to bring these qualities into a relationship or promote peace in the world. And Aphrodite, Venus, it's all there. Mm -hmm. Irene. Irene. <laughs> Communication spells. Pigeons are associated with communication and understanding, so they can be used in spells to improve communication and to promote understanding in relationships or in the world at large. I want to speculate. Do you think that guy had any knowledge of Irene? Do you think it was just somebody she saw and has been like crushing on so, so, so hard? Or do you think it's somebody she's been fooling around with and he, she's like, I need him to leave her? his wife because he's not uh -huh. my wife and he's messing with me part of me thinks that he doesn't even notice her you might be right 
I never even thought of that. I always just assumed that this was somebody that she's been involved with for quite a while. And then like, it was kind of that whole situation. Like he would tell her, I'm going to leave my wife. I'm going to leave my wife. And then he just never does mm -hmm. and just keeps giving her the runaround just to keep her on a string. Mm -hmm. That was the impression I always got, but you could be right. We'll never know. <laughs> we'll never know. These, uh, they can also be used in peace spells. Doves are often seen as messengers of peace, so they can be used in spells to promote peace and love in the world or in specific situations. Wishing spells, both doves and pigeons, are often seen as messengers of the divine, so they can be used in wishing spells to carry prayers and wishes to the spirit world. Speaking I, of spirit world, before we get into the product, were you going to say something else about well, that real quick? I was just going to ask you if you were to use doves or call in doves, like what would you lean toward? I said what I said and then I kind of moved on. I'm so sorry. I would... I would probably associate them with like a peace spell or some kind of pacifist kind of spell or mediation spell mm. kind of li the libra they are the the mediators mediator sounds good like the yeah the therapist a diplomat the diplomat, diplomat. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah uh, maybe like a kind of like a diplomatic kind of spell Okay. Maybe extending extending an olive branch. If oh, maybe if you, if you get into a fight with a person, yeah. Maybe to smooth things over a little bit. And mm. there's a miscommunication happening because I feel like most of the time when when you have a falling out with somebody, it's mostly due to like a miscommunication of sorts. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's annoying to be that bigger person, but ultimately, if you want to extend that olive branch, maybe to help smooth things over, maybe including the dove symbol, if you don't have access to like a dove heart or like, <laughs> not saying you should use like dove hearts or an actual dove in your spell, but like if you have a dove feather or mm. if you have something or like maybe even an, an olive branch can Ooh, symbolize- Lather yourself up in olive oil. Yeah. Ooh. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> you can use the olive oil as that kind of anointing oil and kind of make your own kind of oil. And then blend. put dove feathers all over yourself. Put <laughs> and then just make yourself look like a dove or yeah, a chicken yeah. or something. Be the and dove then, you wish to see in the world. And then just run around outside in your new balances like Christina <laughs> under the full moon if you wanna you wanna go run around naked <laughs> outside. Yeah. But I guess that's what I how I would personally use it as kind of like that extending of an olive branch, smoothing over a disagreement or a miscommunication spell, kind of I that love sort that. of thing. Yeah. I love that. I love that a lot. I think so. And then also if you want to include I like including tarot cards, like the archetypes and the symbolism mm -hmm. in those cards. I know well the Libra card doesn't isn't that represented by the justice card? Making things right, because that's kind of like making things Hearing right it's also it's also ruled by libra which is oh, the balance okay. of the scales and then also you have the sword in there which is ruled by air and bird mm. and you know that bird magic if you want to mm -hmm. any kind of i guess the suits to represent that bird energy if you want to continue to have a relationship with that person right. it's part right. of communication is the only way and most of the time we shut down because we're scared mm -hmm. we're hurt we're upset and the you know being angry they say it's like a secondary emotion and i think that's a great yeah way to maybe open yourself up to being the bigger person i'm not saying keep getting your shit kicked around you know don't take right. your shit um but right. if you feel that this person is healthy for you you love them you go for it because i mean miscommunications still happen even with the people that we love that it's not an abusive relationship miscommunications mm -hmm. happen regardless of whether or not abuse is involved in the picture right it happens with like, us every now and then and then yeah. i'm like i'm so sorry i was a bitch <laughs> well, and vice versa i'm sure there's times where i'm like i come off like a bitch and like it's just takes like some mature relationship to keep 
those both sides of the streets flow in and just keep that relationship just evolving and growing and that communication needs to be constantly worked on if you want to make that relationship a strong one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like the the meaning of the dove and the communication and the extending of the olive branch. And I can't tell you how many friendships have ended over a stupid miscommunication. Mm-hmm. And neither one of part neither party wants to own up to their mistakes or fuck-ups but like you know things happen when you're young and the ship has mm-hmm. sailed by the time you realize that oh maybe i was the asshole in that situation <laughs> <laughs> but then like you know the ship has since sailed so you're yeah. like i really don't feel like i need to re- revive that relationship in my life maybe it was just a learning lesson yeah and yeah. i'll just apply that to new friendships in the future <laughs> mm-hmm. you know there's always two sides and it's... you're you are probably the bad guy in somebody else's book you're always gonna yeah. you know for sure. I think you're always in the right because you're the main character yeah. in your story. But by using the dove to come to realization of, the, of those, because um, Tom Petty tendencies of, of being mm-hmm. right all the time. Yes, yeah, we can all be Tom Petty. I yeah. know I could still be Tom Petty sometimes. <laughs> but I like using the dove as a reminder to maybe, maybe the dove can also be a symbol of self-awareness, knowing when is the right time to own up to your own mm know mistakes or ego right the letting putting your ego aside and just not letting your pride get in the way to come forward and say i fucked up i'm Mm -hmm. sorry like you know and that makes me think of the the pigeon the shed me and his courage takes a lot of courage to be the bigger person to own up to those things yep all connected all fucking connected (laughs) but there are some products um justine's gonna tell us we're not sponsored we just found some different products having to do with dove's blood yeah so this is actually the witch of walkerville dove's blood ink and this is from smudgemetaphysical.com this says dove's blood ink is traditionally used for spells involving love desire blessings reconciliation friendship and loyalty it's also used to seal packs and promises like a blood oath Mm -hmm. do we have a blood oath come episode coming up we do shit okay so its magical heritage stretches back to ancient greece when a pair of doves it says her favorite bird oh aphrodite okay a pair of doves would be sacrificed by aphrodite because doves are her favorite bird by love petitioners doves blood ink is attributed to venus usually it is a dark pink or a red ink with essences of venus herbs such as rose jasmine or geranium a little bit about doves blood though they refer to the ancient practice of writing spells and packs in blood dragon's blood doves blood and bat's blood ink are actually high quality red pigments that contain no blood they are used in hoodoo and witchcraft to inscribe magical seals and talismans Blood type inks are based on dragon's blood, also known as cinnabar, a natural resin, which is also, I guess, what the dra- dragon's blood powder is made out of that cinnabar. resin. Yeah, that has been used for centuries as a pigment varnish and incense. So we're sorry to burst your bubbles, everybody, but there are no dragons used in the process of making dragon's blood, unfortunately. Yeah. I would love to be all Khaleesi about it. Are you a Game of Thrones <laughs> fan? Um, I would love to be Khaleesi, but unfortunately, dragons don't exist. <laughs> Um, but these inks are imbued with the essence of various herbs and plants appropriate to the different types of workings. So the Witch of Walkerville, uh, they're formulated and created by Michelle, and she's the owner of Smudge Spiritual Boutiques. She's on Instagram over at Smudge Metaphysical. Okay, so you can get a vial of this uh, Dove's Blood, I guess this blood ink. Oh, that's from Conjured cardia.indymade.com okay so this is a different product Mm -hmm. again also this is not a blood ink though this is a dove's heart 
oil. And um, this is a great oil to have on hand, whether you use it on yourself to promote compassion, use it in family matters or in a romantic event or in romantic venues. This oil has many logical uses. It provides calming relief when tensions are high or during stressful times, calms the spirit, promotes peace, settles matters of the heart, great for cleansing and healing the home. Uh, it's created with honeysuckle, vanilla, peach, and bay. It also contains a traditional hoodoo method of combining special ingredients to make it appear that there is a heart and blood droplets in the bottle. There is no actual tissue or blood in this bottle. This is a traditional method used to ensure potency and authenticity to the oil. And the quote, heart, is what gives this oil authenticity. And you can buy a bottle of this on that website for $14.99. <laughs> we'll link it. Uh, yeah, and the owner of Conjured Cardia is Mama Sera. While we're on Pretty. the topic of magic, should we talk a little bit about dubs and dreams? Because I forgot to put this in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you want me to do it now? Yeah, we can. Yeah. While we're on the topic of magic. All right, man. All right. Mercedia Ryan, the ultimate dictionary of dream language. Here we go. If you dream of doves, you will enjoy victory in all phases of your life, especially in matters of love. Do not waste time deciding. Pursue someone you desire. You have taken too long to make a move in the direction you want to go for the next three days. The cycle will be perfect for you to make a romantic overture. That's pretty on the nose. Um, yeah. She also has dead dove and dove coat. So oh. maybe I'll do dove coat since we're going to talk about those next. Yeah. And if you dream about dove coats and those are the little sanctuaries where dugs are, doves are, <laughs> Doug funny, dugs are <laughs> bred <laughs> um, and, and kept. So any form of reconciliation with another individual is possible. If you make a move within four days, this will rapidly develop into a wonderful situation. So what we were basically just talking about, being the bigger person, extending, extending the olive branch. We're amazing. Right? Yeah. Um, on spiritanimals.org, seeing a dove in your dream, um, the most likely explanation is that you are bound to receive good news in your real world. This symbol reinforces your feelings of inner peace, gentle demeanor, and simplicity that you are now experiencing in the real world. The dove in your dream is connected to your creative energy and aspirations, encouraging you to take the next step in your career or love life. Seeing the dove in your dream is knowing that others will soon approach you with even more positivity, reciprocating your goals and ideals. And this type of dream is simply an affirmation to enjoy life, take a moment to capture in its beauty and relax, knowing that beauty and harmony will always transcend conflicts. Wow. And yeah, there's a lot more on here about doves. We will link this, but they basically tell you what the different types of dove dreams are, like having a dove land on your hand, a flock of doves soaring above you, dreaming of a white dove, dreaming of a black, I didn't, black doves, I didn't know black oh. doves were a thing. No. Um, at that point, I thought it was just a pigeon, right? <laughs> A message from a dove, uh, dreaming of a dove pecking you, which seems mm -hmm. horrifying. Catching a dove in your dream, or dreaming of a dead dove, or dreaming of a dove's nest. Killing the dove in your dream, dreaming oh. of a dove on a windowsill. There's tons of different types of takeaways from all these different dreams, so if you guys have had any of those dove dreams, we will link this in our <laughs> We're gonna dive into a little pop culture, and want to touch back on something we covered a little earlier on the section where we discussed the dove coats. And I didn't even think to include this until after finding that article. And I was just like, boom, like, you know, the, the inspiration hit and it was all coming together. So a few months ago, August of this year, 2023, Justina, you might remember me talking about this and maybe even listeners too. I think I, I was on here raving about one of Alice's other books entitled The Dove Keepers. 
Yeah. So uh, I'll read the synopsis in a minute, but this was the first book that I can remember ever gasping out loud at the plot turn. Yeah. Intense. I, I love Practical Magic and you know this, um, but some of you might agree that it's a bit anticlimactic, like not really a whole lot happens. Right. And the Dove Keepers was so well researched for its historical subject matter. I was just blown away. I'm completely ignorant when it comes to this corner of the world and its culture and um, reading the Dove Keepers, though it's a work of fiction, kind of like Diana Gabaldon, who wrote Outlander, you know, with Alice, the research is going to be thick, Mm -hmm. thick. The Dove Keepers was stunningly written and it sheds a light on a beautiful culture, beautiful people and beautiful magic that was interwoven into their lives. So I really recommend this book. I try to tell everybody to go read it. This was probably her first book that I've read of hers that was like not anything like the other ones and I'll read the synopsis and you'll kind of see why okay so the dove keepers is set in Judea in 70 AD so it's only 70 years after Jesus's crucifixion during the first Jewish Roman war in the years after the destruction of the second temple some 900 Jewish rebels and their families fled Jerusalem and took refuge in the seemingly impregnable fortress of Masada on the eastern edge of the Judean desert. According to the historian Josephus, or Josephus, when the fortress finally fell, the occupants killed themselves en masse rather than submit to the capture and enslavement by the Romans. Only two women and five children survived. This has been, like, debated, I think, but this story uh, just inspired Alice. Though archaeological digs at Masada have since cast considerable doubt on Josephus's account, Hoffman's novel adheres to that version of events. It is narrated by four women, all whom have endured terrible sufferings before finding asylum at this fortress. All are burdened with secrets. Yael, whose mother died in childbirth, is treated like a dog by her father. He's terrible. Mm. Revka watched a Roman soldier brutally rape and murder her daughter. Aziza was raised as a boy and a warrior, and her mother, Shira, is reputed to be a witch. These women are drawn together by their work as Masada's dove keepers, collecting the birds' eggs and gathering their droppings to fertilize the fortress's orchards. The work is humble and dirty, but amid the filth and noise of the birdhouses, the women grow closer and their lives become inextricably bound together. Uh, This is from The Guardian, by the way, this next little bit. They say that this is a world in which trust in the immutability of one's destiny is matched by the desperate belief that the right magic can change the future. The Dove Keepers' lives are punctuated by prayers, curses, and omens. Their decisions are directed by prophecies and by dreams. Their faith is sustained by miracles. And we know that, they say from Josephus, how the story must end. And this only adds to the sense so strongly shared by the women themselves that their fates are already decided. Alice does give a little interview on, I think this is YouTube, and she says that I came to write the Dove Keepers because of a trip I made to Israel. I went to Masada, the ancient fortress where 900 Jews committed suicide rather than submit to Roman rule and enslavement. I really went as a tourist, and I had a much different experience than I thought I would have. I really felt the past all around me, and I thought there were so many voices that had been silenced. I've really felt those voices come to me, and that's how the book began. I researched the book in many ways over a period of about five years. Wow. I did, yeah. 
I did a lot of reading. So real quick, the text she uses and the different ancient words she uses for different things is so beautiful. And it like really triggers your uh, detective skills. Yeah. She says, I used as my main text, the work of Josephus, who is really the only historian at the time, the only person who has a story to tell about what happened during the Roman occupation of Jerusalem. When I first began to read Josephus's work, I was very surprised because of the account of Masada was not the account that I had always heard, but I had no idea that there had been survivors. In Josephus's account, he says that two women and five children survived, and that really sparked my imagination. I wanted to tell the story of those survivors. I chose to write about Masada because the story came to me. I don't really feel that I chose to write the story. I feel that when I visited Masada, the story came to me and that I really didn't have any choice but to tell the story. Mm -hmm. It was a story that hadn't been told before because there are so many women in ancient history. There's Cleopatra, but for common women, there are very few mentions. In fact, there are only 188 women mentioned by name in the Bible. So to discover what it would be like to be a woman living in ancient times was very difficult. I wanted to find out what domestic life was like, what love was like, what their spiritual life was like. It was a real challenge for me to find this out. I think one of the things that really interested me was that I felt that the passions of these four women who tell the story are the same as the passions of women today all over the world. For me, they feel extremely modern in their desires and their beliefs and the way in which they are willing to do anything to save their children. And then she says in a little interview, because I was like, she writes and even um, in Practical Magic, isn't Samuel and his father Abraham, aren't they Jewish uh, by descent? Oh, right. Yeah. Right. And uh, and to write this, to be so drawn into a history like this, I'm like, is she Jewish? I think she is. Yeah. But anyway, I'm, I'm looking around for more information on this. And it has a little bit here in an interview. She says, I'm very comfortable being Jewish. That's who I am. But I'm also very paranoid, she explains. I have the sense that you always have to be ready to leave. And the things that are important, you have to be able to carry with you, both emotionally and materially. Politics is an ever-changing situation, and Jews are outsiders. Jews and women have both been persecuted as outsiders, she adds. Her mysteriously powerful female characters can be so threatening to society that they are often labeled witches. Quote, strong women are part of Jewish tradition, she says. My grandmother and my mother worked to support their families. They made the decisions. Her relationship with her Russian-born grandmother, Lily, had a huge impact on her. Though Lily was not religious, she was, quote, very Jewish and would tell, quote, personal folktales about villages in a frozen world where men would disappear for the whole winter to go logging. It was such a fairy tale world compared to the suburban Long Island, Hoffman says, who has replicated the mother-daughter-grandmother triad in many ways in her books, right? Right, yeah. Um, oh, and we wanted to touch on a little bit also, I discovered that Alice um, is a mother <laughs> and she's married. <laughs> Yeah, so through this through this um, article, I was like, is she Jewish? Like, what's what's the deal? And another thing I didn't get to pull because the little uh, preview on Google said I came back to Judaism because of my sons. And I'm oh. like, your sons. And then when <laughs> I blew it up, I couldn't find that part ever again. Right. So sorry, Alice. <laughs> she is married. <laughs> she has. A I don't know why I thought she had what no children because didn't we talk didn't they talk about that during her interview with hillary when we went to see her didn't they touch on that a little bit i for the i could have sworn yeah that her books are her kids yeah I that's what, i thought so too so tom martin i think was the significant other's name guys okay. let us know yeah just going off what google said i'm like her sons 
Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So maybe we maybe need to do they a... go by a different last name. Maybe because they yeah. don't, maybe they're estranged. Maybe they don't want to be in that limelight. Who knows? I don't know. Yeah. All right. Take me away. We're going to talk about some dope symbolism in music. So going back to our Stevie Nicks episode, which was number, I don't remember what number the Stevie episode was, but we also, we deep dive on more Stevie's music in a WMSR episode. That's session number four, if you guys want to go listen to that WMSR episode. We talked about her hit song, Edge of Seventeen, where she sings about the white-winged dove. And speaking further in her video commentary, she spoke about the white-winged dove and what the song means to her. It became a song about violent death, which was very scary, she says, to me, because at the point, no one in my family had died. She says, to me, the white-winged dove was for John Lennon, the dove of peace. And for my uncle, it was the white-winged dove who lives in the saguaro cactus, another connection. So that, she says, that's how I found out about the white-winged dove. And it does make that sound that, you know, the sound she emulates in her song, woo, woo, woo. She says, I read that somewhere in Phoenix and thought I would use that in the song. The dove became exciting and sad and tragic and incredibly dramatic. Every time I sing the song, I have that ability to go back to that two-month period where it all came down. I've never changed it, and I can't imagine ending my show with any other song. It's such a strong, private moment that I share in this song. Another song that uses doves, which Stevie Nicks was a huge Prince fan. Nice. And I feel like, I don't remember if, no, it wasn't, it wasn't The Edge of Seventeen. It was Stand Back. Stand Back was inspired by Little Red Corvette by Prince. (laughs) So she was a huge Prince fan, right? Okay. Um, so that's interesting that we're spiraling off of Stevie because now we're going to talk about Prince. So when Doves Cry came out in 1984, um, he sings, maybe I'm just too demanding. Maybe I'm just like my father, too bold. Maybe you're just like my mo- mother. She's never satisfied. Why do we scream at each other? This is what it sounds like when the doves cry. I don't remember if this was a quote from him. This article is from spectrumtransformation.com. And the author of this article talks about what was Prince saying when he wrote this song in his lyrics? What is he trying to say? So they say, when we fight, we hurt one another at a deep level. Doves, a symbol of love and peace, would never sound like this, but if they did, they would be crying. In these lyrics, Prince muses on his role in creating conflict, being too demanding, or acting like his parental role models. How important, if not unusual, to express responsibility for conflict. It is what we all need to be reminded to do. Examine ourselves first when there is a problem. Isn't that what we were just saying? Exactly. Yeah. Realizing when it's important to be the bigger person to extend the olive branch being more self-aware being Mm -hmm. aware like am i the am i the bad guy in the story am i the drama am i the drama (laughs) not the drama i'm not yes you are yeah yeah so screaming is an assault on one another it is an offense to the senses it is incongruous as doves crying there's a whole other article the deeper meaning of when doves cry so we'll link this in our show notes down below There's a couple other songs that I mentioned here. We don't have to get too into them, but um, On the Wings of a Dove, written by Bob Ferguson in 1958. I think it's a more religious song of the uh, Catholic Christian mm. sector, but um, it's I think it's been covered multiple times. It's more of like, I guess, like an older song that people just cover a lot. And then there's The Dove by Judy Collins. I like Judy um, I don't like know the song, though. Yeah, I don't know that song. I'll have to, um, we'll link it. We'll link these in the show notes. But maybe I'm just too demanding. Good song. I love the synth in that song. (laughs) Synth on overdraft. Like my father too bold. Well, we're coming off Christmas on this one. 
and you have this coming up. What is, is a turtle dove the same as a morning dove? That's what I didn't know. So, okay. We're going to talk about the two turtle doves that mention in the that annoying freaking song, The that 12 Days of song. Christmas. It's just, it goes on forever. It seems like there's no end in sight. I found this article on wilsonevergreen.com. And this article, it analyzes the true meaning of that song, The 12 Days of... The, this says The 12... Oh, I thought that said Daves. It, it did. I was <laughs> changing it. Oh, you changed Daves. it? Okay. 12 Daves of... Dave Who's Grohl? Dave? <laughs> Dave Grohl, Dave... What other Daves do we, do Dave, we know? Dave, David Bowie, Dave Bowie, Dave yeah. Letterman, Dave Le Dave Letterman. There's a lot of Daves, yeah. but are there twelve Daves? No. Do yeah. they all celebrate Christmas? All right, the twelve days of Christmas. They say I found out that that popular song that we all know with the confusing lyrics "Partridge in a Pear Tree" and the two turtle doves, the three French hens, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, has special meaning behind them. I never knew all of this. I didn't Did know, you this. know this. No. So, a bit of modern folklore claims that the song's lyrics were written as a catechism song to help young Catholics learn their faith. At a time when practicing Catholicism was criminalized in England between 1558 until 1829. Practicing Catholicism was criminalized? I suppose so. I never knew. So there is no primary evidence supporting this claim and no evidence that the claim is historical or quote anything but a fanciful modern day speculation i have a question yeah so oh this is england right i'm mm -hmm. thinking of like the movie the witch where mm -hmm. they are like puritanical isn't that uh, in the 1600s like they're not yeah. catholic right they follow some other kind of like church of england i don't know right yeah maybe like the pure yeah the puritans or because yeah, so that family's like kicked out right they're ostracized yeah they were shunned from their mm. village but i don't remember on what grounds i don't know okay yeah. continue so the theory is a relatively recent origin it was first suggested by the canadian english teacher and hymnologist hugh d mckellar in a short article titled how to decode the 12 days of christmas it was published in 1979 in a later article it was published in the music journal the hymn hymn h-y-m-n and he reiterates that the associations are his the idea was further popularized by a catholic priest uh is fr does that stand for friar father 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 hal stockert do you do you ever watch sex in the city that episode where samantha's trying to bang the priest yeah yeah she called him friar fuck yep <laughs> i love her um so father hal stockert in an article he wrote in 1982 and posted online in 1995 so here's the <gasps> the rundown i'm oh, sorry like a like a priest up on technology posting online in, in 1995, 1995. Good he was for ahead him. of his time right Good for him so for each i guess verse of the song right because mm -hmm. we all know that song 12 da -na 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 and a partridge in a pear tree each number for each verse of the song stands okay. for in the bible and okay. i have an idea so here's the rundown the partridge in the pear tree was jesus christ okay the two turtle doves stood for the old and new testaments so that's what each dove okay. presents the three french hens stood for faith hope and love the four calling birds were the four gospels of matthew mark luke and john the five golden rings were called the torah or the law the first five books of the old testament the six geese laying stood for the six days of creation the seven swans swimming represented the sevenfold gifts of the holy spirit 
prophecy, serving, teaching, exhortation, contribution, leadership, and mercy. The eight maids of milking were the eight beatitudes. The nine ladies dancing were the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is triggering me. <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 yeah. This is like shit we had to memorize for like confirmation. Yes, exactly. Continue. Exactly. The ten lords a-leaping were the ten commandments. The eleven pipers piping stood for the eleven faithful disciples. And the twelve drummers drumming symbolized the twelve points of belief in the Apostles' Creed. So, although there is no proof that this is why the song came to be, it is interesting to read about. A lot of the times, faith cannot be proven. No, faith can never. He says a lot of the times, faith cannot be proven. How about all the time, faith cannot yeah. be proven? It's, it's a called personal, science. It's a personal thing, right? If something cannot be proven, it's spirituality, and that's mm -hmm. subjective. So that's really cool. Thanks for putting right. that in. I had no idea. I had no idea either. I was like, this is blowing my mind. Mm -hmm. And although that was very triggering, I don't remember it. <laughs> ever singing that song in Catholic school, right? I feel like it became a more secular song for mm. Christians. I don't remember ever associating this song with religion or Catholic or CCD school. Anyway, sorry to trigger you, everybody. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> We're going to get back to uh, more rock music. And rock, and and rock and roll. Sex, and drugs, and rock and roll. And witchcraft. Here we go. <laughs> so there is a rock band called The Doves. This, I guess, a 90s rock band. They are an English indie rock band formed in Manchester, 1998. The band is composed of twin brothers, Jez, on guitar and vocals, and Andy Williams on drum and vocals, and Jimmy Goodwin on lead vocals, bass, and guitar. And the lead vocalist, Jimmy Goodwin, insists that their name is, quote, an expression of freedom and escape, which was taken from an interview that the band did with The Guardian in 2005. Mm. In that interview, he also mentions that Dove, I guess the band went through some drug drama. Okay. Um, or they did a lot of drugs maybe back then, but um, they mentioned that Dove, a Dove, is also a name for an ecstasy tablet. Oh shit. Okay. The more, the more you know. <laughs> the more you know. So are they Manchester 1998? Are they still together? I don't know. Huh. All right. Yeah. So check out their music if you guys would like to. And they're they can be found on dovesmusicblog.com. You guys have probably seen the dove on those old Woodstock Festival posters. Mm. Um, the dove is a symbol of the Woodstock Festival. Um, so the poster was created by graphic designer Arnold Skolnick. The original Woodstock poster features the iconic dove and guitar that has been associated with the festival for the past five decades. Originally, the symbol was a catbird and a flute. And I think the catbird is a type of dove or a type of pigeon. Oh, okay. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, so Skolnick was staying on Shelter Island near Long Island, New York, when he was asked to design this poster. While he was there, he constantly drew the catbirds that inhabited the area. Those catbirds became the iconic dove. Quote, it sat on a flute for a day and I finally ended up putting it on a guitar, Skolnick explained. Cut out on a piece of paper, Skolnick delivered the, this minimalistic yet historical Per, a poster in only three days time. Skolnick's choice of bold, colorful typography successfully mirrored the hippie vibes of the times. In accordance with the ideology of peace and equality, the band names were all kept in equal size and listed in a non-hierarchical hierarchical non-hierarchical yeah a nine like a non-hierarchy uh, alphabetical order in the midst of the vietnam war woodstock served as a promise of three days in which peace and music would live in harmony 
Skolnick's 1969 poster embodies all things Woodstock, and it remains revered to this day as one of the most important visual symbols in music history. I love how it's just standing on one little leg. Yeah, it's kind of like that, uh, the carrier pigeon in the war that lost his leg. Do you think it was? Because this was a symbol of anti-war. Oh. I mean, it doesn't say that in this little, It uh, doesn't, but was it, from... was it Cherami? Yeah, you only Cherami. had one little leg. Yeah. Do you think that's why he only gave it one leg? Maybe. I love that. I, I love that theory. All right, Sullivan Cascales Dovetrail. So... All right, so yeah, this is kind of like a spinoff of the Woodstock thing. There's a, something a little more contemporary and a little more modern. Okay. Or recent, rather. Um, so the Sullivan Catskills Dove Trail, and I guess this is in the Catskill Mountains. Um, so this commemorates the 50th anniversary of the 1969 Woodstock Festival and celebrates its impact on our Sullivan Catskills. It's a collection of 60-plus dove sculptures perched in villages, towns, and at several tourism businesses. Each permanently mounted dove is hand-painted by a professional local artist and inspired by the legendary event held here in 1969. They're beautiful. That's you really see cool. Some of those sculptures, they're so bright and colorful. Does Jersey have anything like that? Because Harrisburg had cows. We have cows, too. I've seen cows, cows, too? I've seen cows around. Yeah, like the okay. cows. Okay. Right? Interesting. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah, believe it or not, New Jersey actually has a lot of farms. We are in the Garden State. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. If you go anywhere past Newark or the Turnpike, <laughs> you'll see that New Jersey is actually very beautiful. There's a lot of farmland here, a lot of agriculture. And yeah, I've seen quite a few hand-painted cow along just like driving, you know, along okay. an old country road. Yeah. Um, so these dove sculptures, um, there's actually more being added to the trail. And there's, if you go on this website, um, SullivanCatSkills.com, I think there's actually a map of the trail and you can see like where they have all these different That's cool. sculptures and they're still adding more. So it's really, really neat. neat. I wonder how you're chosen or how you put your name in to get right. to submit yeah. something. It must be quite the honor. Yeah. Um, it's very I'm not cool. sure. How many did they say? uh 60 plus wow yeah, lots of them and they're still adding more so Amazing. who knows um yeah so guys if you are in the catskills area definitely check out that trails check out this map see where all the different ones are and if uh you feel so inclined to go see any of them take a picture and tell tell them the scene ascension yeah <laughs> there you go <laughs> tag us at magnolia street podcast yeah. on instagram we'd love to see you with one of these beautiful hand-painted dubs um so we'll talk we're going to talk a little bit more about that picasso painting or um, was it a lithograph? I don't lithograph. remember what it said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but he painted, or he did an art piece of the dove. And this article is called How Picasso's Dove of Peace Became a Worldwide Symbol of Hope and Unity. And this was written by Ne Olivia Waga. And this was posted on Forbes. This article is from Forbes.com. In 1949, Pablo Picasso created, quote, Dove of Peace, also known as Colombe. This symbol, yet profound artwork, was designed for the World Peace Congress in Paris and has since become an iconic symbol of hope and unity. Measuring just 9.4 by 7.5 inches, the original Dove of Peace features an abstract representation of a white dove against a vibrant black background. The choice of colors and subject matter carries deep symbolism, especially considering the global context at the time. World War II had left the world in turmoil. Picasso, a vocal advocate for peace, sought to contribute to the conversation, the conversation on disarmament and reconciliation through his art. The dove was an apt choice to convey his message. 
the inspiration for the illustrated dove came through a Milanese pigeon gifted to Picasso by his fellow artist Henry Matisse. Um, that was another one of my favorite artists. I always really liked Matisse. Um, Picasso's rendition of the dove is striking in its simplicity. He employs minimal lines and shapes to capture the essence of the bird. The angular abstract approach adds a contemporary relevance to the piece, emphasizing its urgency. The white of the dove represents purity and peace, while the black and blue background symbolizes the vastness of the sky and the potential for global unity. His works remind us that peace is an active pursuit that requires collective effort. Again, going back to what we were saying before, it takes both sides of you know, both parties in a relationship to make that peaceful relationship work. The impact of Dove of Peace extends beyond the canvas. It has been adopted as a symbol by numerous peace organizations and activists worldwide. Over the years, the image has appeared on posters, banners, and even postage stamps, uniting people who share a commitment to the cause of peace. The power of Picasso's Dove of Peace lies in its ability to inspire change and meaningful conversations. Picasso believed that art had a role to play in addressing the issues of the time, and this artwork exemplifies that belief. In the following years of his first Dove painting, up until his death, he included the symbol in many other works. Furthermore, Picasso's dedication to peace was not confined to his art. He donated many of his works, including Dove of Peace, to peace organizations actively contributing to their efforts to prevent and support in solving conflict. Picasso's commitment to peace demonstrates the potential for artists to make a real-world impact. Picasso's Dove of Peace, later also captured with an olive branch, which also stands for peace, symbolizes hope and unity that transcends its status as a work of art. Its simplicity and abstraction conveys a timeless message that resonates with people worldwide. Picasso's devotion to peace, both as an artist and an activist, still serves as an inspiring example of how art can play a significant role in promoting positive change. So art can be activism, right? Art is activism. I like his um, motivations. I like mm. his stance, his morality. Yeah. Yeah. This picture, I'm not impressed. It doesn't do it for you. This I looks think... like when you're like studying charcoal in college mm. picasso put a little more effort in it said he he included the dove in mul in others of his work so maybe this was his first one maybe this was like he was, just, he was trying it out seeing okay it, i just it think seems, it's it seemed to take off so maybe he just kept going with it beautifully written article um but it's funny to look at this piece and all the little ways they try to spin like oh this represents this and the simplicity in this like, i don't know yeah. if he thought that hard about it <laughs> just Maybe he just, he just made a dove on a page one day and people were like, peace, yeah. all right. Yeah. It's and a, he a genius. He took it and ran with it. <sighs> can you can you blame a guy? Nah, he yeah. made his monies. He made his monies, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about stage magic because I feel like that's a huge part of pop culture, right? Mm -hmm. Like why? Why does a magician use doves in their magic tricks? Why? Um, so this article, this little tidbit, comes from magicianmasterclass.com so if okay. you guys want some uh tips and tricks uh, and you know on your stage magic have what the david blaine what in the david blaine we'll put this in our show notes for all the david blaines out there so stage magicians use doves in their magic because they are calm birds that can easily be trained to perform simple actions and learn quickly as we learned before if a pigeon or a dove can be trained to carry messages through a war and do little puzzles and do smart. little puzzles they, they're smarter than than we give them credit for this is true. birds are handled from a young age so they will not fear the magician they are trained in situations that simulate the lights and noise of the theater or the venue and food treats are used as rewards during training as with other animals so big question 
right? Do magicians kill birds in their magic tricks? It says no evidence suggests that magicians kill birds as part of their performances. Magicians who use birds spend countless hours training them and take great care to treat them humanely, unlike the circus as we um so yeah if you work close enough with an animal you form a relationship and a bond with yeah it, you want to protect it yeah but it says where did the killing rumor start because i guess this is a big i don't know like a big misconception mm -hmm. in the magician field it says the idea of a magician's killing a bird in performance first appeared in the 2006 well leave it to hollywood to fuck some shit up the 2006 movie the prestige do you but... remember that scene I don't. I don't. I don't think I've ever okay. seen this movie. Okay, yeah. then I'm not going to give it away. All right. Okay. Yeah, it said it. it's a rumor that has survived nearly 100 years. So I guess it. Oh, okay. Okay. So I guess the Prestige didn't make up this rumor. I guess they just highlighted it because I, it's mm -hmm. a 100 plus year old rumor that they just decided to talk about in the movie. Mm -hmm. According to a post on Movie Stack Exchange, a story spread that magician Harry Keller, he killed a canary every time he presented the vanishing birdcage effect. An inquiry took place and Keller proved that this was not the case. Keller showed that he only had one bird, the same bird that he had used for a long mm -hmm. time. But the same controversy would come to haunt other magicians across the globe for decades just because of that one instance. I in recommend history. that movie. It's yeah. All right. Freaking good. Is it about a magician? It's about like dueling tradi uh, trad magicians, kind of oh. like The Illusionist. I don't know okay. if you remember I've that one too. Yeah, I've seen that one. Um, All right. I think check the this prestige is Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. Okay. Girl, oh, okay. it's got a good twist at the end. You and Avi would like this yeah. movie. Oh, it's good. Ooh, all right, um, I'll add it to my. I'll add it to my list. All I right. wanted to touch on that. Um, it's interesting the tie into magic, M A G I C, and magic with a K, because something mm -hmm. you and I talked about in our rabbits episode, episode twenty-seven, like the uh, Ben and his rabbit, right? Yeah having the magician play a part with his rabbit or another animal they use the doves the mm -hmm. visual of the magician that we get the aunts they yes. use the dove in their magic trick which is their spell for irene and in the film we don't know what happens to the dove's heart after it is pricked with the pen but it's there then it's gone yeah that's their they are the magician and in, in their spotlight their three ring circus that is their mm -hmm. their spells are their magic tricks right yeah Totally. I never like knew like back when I started getting into magic and all that, that people would add the K as a distinction between stage magic and I guess witchcraft magic. It's spiritual. I didn't magic. think I knew that until you told me when we started really? this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever you follow Joanna DeVoe? Yeah. Yeah. Her she has a tagline. I think every time she makes a YouTube video or she used to post a lot. Mm-hmm. She would be like putting the K in magic or some or something like She's that. Cute. Yeah, yeah. I I I think I didn't know that until I actually saw her videos, and then I was like, oh, passing okay. the the knowledge right down the line. Yeah, passing the knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Speaking of, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Not speaking of, but speaking, speaking of, of our bellies are grumbling at this point. Let's speaking talk of, about I'm food. fucking starving. Me too. We're gonna. We've been talking since 11 a.m. It's now 3:30, and I'm Ugh, hungry. We gotta go. We're gonna talk about some recipes courtesy of none other than Mrs. Beaton. Do you remember Mrs. Mrs. Beaton? Mrs. Beaton. The Victorian lady. What were we re what episode right. did you show up in? I'm going to refresh me. your memory, okay? Okay. So, all right. All right. So talking about using doves as meat. 
So the meat of dove and pigeon, game birds, hunted primarily for sport, is uh, called squab. Dove meat is often described as having a mild, slightly gamey flavor. It is lean and tender, with a taste that is often compared to other game birds such as quail or pheasant. The flavor can vary depending on the dove's diet and the method of preparation. Some people also liken it to a richer version of chicken. A dove breast yields about 3 ounces of meat. A whole dressed dove yields a little more, about 10 ounces. The edible portion portion of one dove equals 10 large shrimp, <laughs> one, ch one chicken leg, uh, two chicken wings, two and a half wieners or hot dogs, three sausage patties, or one bratwurst. That is such a funny ass unit of measurement. Isn't it? Yeah. But I was like, how much, how much meat does a dove give off? Or like, right, right. Produce. Give you? Yeah. 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 Um, some suggest letting your dove your dove breasts, I guess like chicken breasts, letting your dove breasts soak in milk for two hours to help diminish the gamey taste. Okay. Um, also, real interesting, me and Avi went to a restaurant recently where we had a wild boar bolognese and they had it prepared traditionally with, you know, I guess beef or chopped meat. But then they also had a different version of the bolognese with wild boar and they soaked it in, I guess they sauteed it or soaked it in chocolate. Oh, what the hell? Take the gamey taste away? Weird. Yeah. Um, what so, kind of chocolate? I have no idea. Milk chocolate? Yeah. No, probably some kind of dark chocolate. But they they take they they cooked it with the chocolate to take the gamey taste away. Oh wow. So I guess I guess soaking uh, like chicken breast or a dove well, chicken's not really gamey, but dove breast, I guess they are. I've never had mm -hmm. it, so I don't know, but I guess soaking it in milk it, uh, helps to diminish that taste. All right. So after they have soaked, pat them down with a paper towel prior to preparing them however you wish to prepare them. Several species of pigeons and doves are used as food. However, all types of them are edible. Domesticated or hunted pigeons have been used as a source of food since the time of the ancient Middle East, ancient Rome, and medieval Europe. It is familiar meat within Jewish, Arab, and French cuisines. According to the Tanakh, doves are kosher and they are the only birds that may be used for for a korban is that like a spiritual dinner i'm really not sure what korban is sacrificial offerings yeah uh described and commanded in the torah other kosher birds may be eaten but not brought as a korban pigeon is also used in asian cuisines such as chinese assamese and indonesian cuisines in europe the wood pigeon is commonly shot as a game bird while rock pigeons were originally domesticated as a food species and many breeds were developed for their meat bearing qualities the extinction of the passenger pigeon in north america was at least partly due to shooting for use as food mrs beaton's book of household management that do you remember her from our Victorian episode? I don't, but now that you're bringing her up, I do now. Um, so she contains recipes for roast pigeon and pigeon pie, a popular inexpensive food in Victorian industrial Britain. So Mrs. I did some- Oh, was Mrs. Beaton? She was the one about cleaning the bottles, the yes. baby bottles. You never had to clean them. This mother- Yes. This bitch. <laughs> she killed how many babies from that, that advice? What is she bringing to us now? Okay. okay. Recipes of roast pigeon and pigeon pie. She's going to poison us all. <laughs> Let's do this. Okay. 
So yeah, I did some digging to see if I could find the pigeon recipes from Mrs. Beaton's book of household management. And sure enough, I found a digitized PDF version on xclassics.com. So this PDF is scanned. It's just scanned in pages from the hard copy of the book. If you can manage to get your hands on a hard copy of this book, you can find these recipes on pages 168 to 174. Damn. And we will link the PDF in our show notes if you, you know, you want to check out these recipes or That's try any wild. of these recipes. Okay. It is wild. So I skimmed the pages just to see what she had on pigeons. And she has a few recipes for pigeon prepared in a few different ways. So she gives recipes for broiled pigeon, roasted, stewed, or pigeon pie. She also includes thorough descriptions of the different types of pigeons in her recipes alongside of their photos so you can identify them. So the various types of pigeons that she mentions in her book are the powder, the carrier, the tumbler, the runt, the nun, the trumpeter, the wood or wild pigeon, the fantail, the jacobin, turbot, barb pigeon, rock, and owl pigeons. She also has some useful information on breeding, housing, and cleanliness as far as keeping your pigeon house clean and like just having them on hand, I guess. Do you think the aunts like read up on Mrs. Beatman's? Absolutely, those Victorian bitches. They had to learn how to keep, keep those pigeons. 384 pages in this book that's a that's a big book that's a big book yeah wow so i'm wondering if the owens uh women the aunts specifically had this book on hand just learning how to keep those pigeons in that greenhouse oh yeah yeah um so we don't have to read all of this i just thought it would be cool to include in our show notes we can just read the highlighted ones which are just the recipes but if you guys are interested and you want to broil a pigeon (laughs) oh man let us know you need three ounces of butter pepper and salt to taste um so take care uh, so I guess this is written in like a Victorian manner. Take care that pigeons are quite fresh and carefully pluck, draw, and wash them. Split the backs, rub the birds over with butter, season them with pepper and salts, and broil them over a moderate fire for a quarter of an hour or 20 minutes. Serve very hot with either mushroom sauce or good gravy. Pigeons may also be plainly boiled and served with parsley and butter. They should be trussed like boiled fowls and take from the quarter hour to 20 minutes to boil. Time to broil a pigeon from quarter hour to 20 minutes. Boil one the same time. Average cost from, what is a D? Six dollars? Six to nine dollars each. Seasonable from April to September, but in the greatest perfection from midsummer to Michaelmas. What's Michaelmas? Six dollars seems like a lot for back then. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think that stands for, for dollars. I don't know. Dimes? Do you know what Michaelmas is? What is it? I'm asking you. <laughs> oh, no, I do not. I do not. Michael, is it like St. Like Michael's feast day? Yeah. Or is it like Christmas or I don't know. Okay. So she teaches you how to keep your pigeons. So the front of the pigeon house should have a southwest aspect. And if a room be selected for the purpose, it is usual to break a hole in the roof. So windows. <laughs> I don't know. Of the building for the passage of the pigeons but which can be closed at convenience. A platform ought to be laid at the entrance for the pigeons to perch upon with some kind of defense against strange cats, which will frequently depopulate a whole a whole dove cot. Yeah. Yet, although cats are dangerous neighbors for the birds, they are necessary to defend them from the approach of rats and mice, which will not only suck the eggs, but destroy the birds. The platform should be painted white and renewed as the paint wears off white being a favorite color with pigeons and also most conspicuous as a mark to enable them to find their house. The boxes ought also to be similarly painted and renewed when necessary, for which purpose lime and water will do very well. So well, they have the aunts have the lime on hand, right? They have the lime and the lye. I think she's guessing. She's on white where they're drawn to white. 
know. She clearly didn't know shit about shit because babies were dying. They were dying. Bacteria, Beatman. Ironically enough, because now she goes into the necessity of cleanliness. Bring it. Talking about pigeons or right. yeah, housing pigeons. A As cleanliness in human habitations is of the first importance, so is it the pigeon house. There, the want of it will soon render the place of nuisance not to be approached, and the birds, both young and old, will be so covered with vermin and filth that they never uh, will neither enjoy health nor comforts, whilst early mortality amongst them will be almost certain. I like how she care more about pigeons than babies. Yeah. In some cases, the pigeon house is clean daily, but it should always be done at any rate once a week, and the floor covered with sifted gravel, frequently renewed. Pigeons being exceedingly fond of water, and having the prescience of the coming of rain, they may seem upon the housetops waiting upon it until late in the evening, and then spreading their wings to receive the luxury of the refreshing shower. That's cute. When they are confined in a room, therefore, they should be allowed a wide pan of water and to be often renewed. This serves them for a bath which cools, refreshes, and assists them to keep their bodies clear of vermin. And then uh, she has one more little bit on breeding. So in breeding pigeons, it is necessary to match a cock and hen, and shut them up together or place them near to each other, and in the course of a day or two, there is little doubt of their mating. Various rules have been laid down for the purpose of assisting to distinguish the cock from the hen pigeon, but the masculine forwardness and action of the cock is generally so remarkable that he is easily ascertained. <laughs> the pigeon being monogamous, the male attaches and confines himself to one female, and the attachment is reciprocal, and the fidelity of the dove to its mate is proverbial. At the age of six months, young pigeons are termed squeakers, and then begin to breed, when properly managed. Their courtship and the well-known tone, a voice in the cock just then acquired and commencing are indications of their approaching union. Nestlings, while fed by cock and hen, are termed squabs, and are at the age sold and used for the table. The dove house, pigeon, is said to breed monthly, uh, when well supplied with food. At all events, it may be depended upon uh, that pigeons of almost any healthy and well-established variety will breed eight or nine times in the year, whence it may readily be conceived how vast are the numbers that may be raised. Check out this book, we'll link it in our show notes, it's a whole PDF. Um, it's more than just pigeons. There's a lot of... there's a lot. There's yeah. a lot of recipes, and the recipe section right after this was rabbits. Rabbit recipe. That's recipes. so funny. Yeah. We yeah, gotta yeah. keep her on a... Uh, is there a table of contents in her book? I'm sure there um, is. I'm sure we can pull her into other yeah. episodes. Yeah, Beatman. maybe in the beginning of the PDF. This was volume two, though, so maybe she she definitely had to have done a volume this, one. This is a sequel. Yeah. So all of chapter... Oh, God. Roman numerals. XXL. It's all... Oh poultry recipes and she does a general observ observations on game she does game recipes so all birds i guess birds and rabbits and whatever else you can find in a field when you're hunting game she does all these all recipes for all of that she also does vegetable recipes putting in pastries they're just recipes if you yeah, want to yeah, check yeah. them out try them out if you have access to all use this your discretion type, type of game exactly yeah. but that's i think that's all we have for today as far as the That's uh it. i love the, the idea of uh what we talked about how to incorporate the dove into your magic mm -hmm. and uh, let us know if you if the dove resonates with you yes. if it has a special place in your magical practice or just in your life magnolia street podcast at gmail.com just a reminder you can check out all of the sources pertaining to today's episode via our hero page the link is in our show notes and thanks again to our patron and palmiers for creating this app and keeping creators like us 
organized. If you guys do want to support the podcast on Patreon, you can support us for as little as $1 a month. That's our seedling tier, and that gets you access to our patron-only polls where you get to weigh in on what topics you would like us to talk about next. It also gets you our monthly calendar so you can see what topics we have coming up for the month, and it also gets you a welcome shout-out on the show. Our $3 Lavender Bud tier get you our show notes for each episode in an aesthetically pleasing pdf our after hours posts if there's any extra tidbits or behind the scenes info pertaining to any of our episodes we'll post those along with the blog post or extra photos and access to our specially curated spotify playlists we have created playlists for our wmsr episodes as well as well as production dream playlists for each song episode and more our $5 Lilac tier gets you access to our private Facebook community where we host a monthly live stream. Plus, you'll get access to our Discord server where we host our monthly watch parties. And also on the Discord, you can join in on the discussion with other Magnolia Street neighbors via the various interesting channels and threads. And then here's the uh, $8 Rose tier. This gets you access to extra audio-visual content such as a once-a-month full-length video episode, unlimited bonus videos, uncut footage, cutting room floor footage, bloopers, outtakes, meditations, exclusive interviews, and old home videos from the vault, or spell or ritual videos, and more. Uh, it also gets you bonus content to coincide with our song episodes, such as full-length demo streams of our original Practical Magic-inspired music, plus lyric sheets, guitar chords, and original scratch demos, or bonus video performances of our songs, and more. Lastly, we have our $15 Wisteria Vine tier. Just like a twisting Wisteria Vine, there's a way for you to stay connected with us, the Stinas. In this tier, we invite you to join our private Marco Polo video messaging app. The app is totally free for both Android and iOS. Sign up with your phone number or email and we will help you do the rest. This is a great way to chat with each other in a more intimate group setting face-to-face -face via video recording. We love to show each other our pets, our gardens, or anything else you'd like to share. And just a reminder that the higher the tier you sign up under, the more rewards you get because you get all of the rewards of the tiers below it. You can upgrade or downgrade or even cancel at any time. So to support the podcast, head to Patreon patreon.com slash magnolia street podcast yeah and there are additional ways to support us and our podcast that don't cost you any money if you do listen on spotify please give us a star rating if you listen to us on apple Podcasts, please give us a written review we love sharing those on our instagram and if you're on instagram we would really appreciate any reposts or blurbs about our podcast and make sure to tag us at magnolia street podcast in your feed post stories and share us with your practical magic love and friends we also have some merch head over to our Teespring. We have lots of designs. Some of them are going away after season one. I have to go take those down. I haven't yet. So get them while they're still there. Um, and that link can be found in our Koji links over on our Instagram. We're Magnolia Street Podcast everywhere. All right. I'm about to go eat some pigeon. I'm about to nom some pigeon. Yeah. I'm so hungry. Me too. I'll talk to you a little later. I'm Christina. I'm Justina. We'll see you next time. And Coraline will see you next time. Ew. Say bye. Why? At the house on Magnolia Street, would you go down to Magnolia Street when the mysterious hero wilds? At the house of magic and mystery, so would you go down to Magnolia Street? You want to show them how you cool like a pigeon? Look at that butthole. Look at that. No, I'm just kidding. Look at that bubblegum starfish. <laughs> <laughs> Grrrr. <laughs>